If you're a Kia K5 GT and Kia Forte GT owner, this is your reminder to breathe. See that sophisticated interior? Enjoy those sensations. And now, imagine how you look from the outside and that speed that only a Kia GT sedan can give you. Sorry, I can't help but get excited. For those lives full of thrilling emotions, the all-powerful, all-fun Kia GT sedans. Kia, movement that inspires. Limited inventory available. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Boxing history, boxing history, boxing fucking history, bro. That's what we're here for, man. I'm here with my guy, Eris Pina, CompuBox operator and fellow fight history file. We're taking it back. I mean, we're taking it back pretty far, but also back far for us. Our very first boxing history episode, the very first one we did, I want to say it was in 2015, was about the hardest punchers man or the greatest punchers however you want to put it and that's where we're taking it back Harris, how are you bro man good man everything's going good it's been a good couple of weeks everything's been quiet in the boxing world um i was looking forward to this weekend because i was gonna supposed to be working um the uh the jake paul fight speaking of heavyweights and big punches or whatever i don't know if you want to consider paul a big puncher but anyways i was supposed to be working that event right and after the fiasco that unfolded on boxing twitter which if you listen to this, I'm sure you watched it unfolded just like the rest of us. Um, yeah, you know what's going on. Uh, yeah, everything is great, man. Well, and and lest anybody get all mad that we even bring it up, like you said, you're about to work it as a punch counter, so it's relevant to your job. But damn, dude, what a fiasco! What a just. And it wasn't even the Paul's fault for the change. I know, man. Well. That's just, it's just, uh, I guess on the only thing I'll say about is this, I just kind of feel bad for Jake Paul because it's like, everybody's been saying for a while now, he's got to fight a real fighter, a real boxer. And each time he's tried boxing ass shit has happened. Like the type of shit that only happens in boxing. It's like some guy can't enter the United States because the guy he was associated with was like a high level gangster. (laughs) I was like actually FBI fucking most wanted. I was explaining that to uh to someone at work today. And he it's like yeah. He couldn't believe what? it. I was like so I'm, I I broke down the whole thing why they couldn't come to the US. Yada 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 all this stuff. And he was like my god man that's really crazy. This is that. I was like honestly it's just boxing. It's and only boxing. I was yeah. like I was like that's just boxing. That's really that's all it is. And he he laughed. He was like yeah, you know, it's a crazy sport. I'm just like <laughs> boxing. And then they're talking about using a screwdriver to manipulate a scale. Oh my God. You know, like that's the type of shit that we like hate fighters for that did like, you know, 12, 15, 20 years ago. That's and amazing. He, said he did it with the intention thinking that he was going to be able to lose the weight anyway. So they wanted to show that like, just come on, man. It, if brutal, they had shown dude. originally what the weight would have been, then this whole thing would have been like. Just brutal. Yeah. I uh, never even just, I, yeah. So it's amazing. It's amazing that, you know, each time he's totally been stymied by some shit that only happens in boxing. So either way, back to the history shit, dude, back to this boxing history stuff, the greatest punchers of all time, the biggest punchers of all time, heaviest punchers of all time, however you want to put it pound for pound or not, I'm down. That's what we're talking about today, dude. So everybody loves a knockout. 
that's one of the things about the sport that I think just about everybody can get into one way or another. They love seeing somebody flopping around, somebody get ragdolled and shit. It's pretty crazy. And beyond any sort of jokes about it, though, I mean, it's amazing to to witness fighters harness that kind of power to be able to, I mean, just in, in physics and in terms of the geometry of it, too, being able to kind of concentrate that much power into like the end of a knuckle or two is amazing. And for some reason, some fighters had really figured out uh, whether it's the delivery, shifting of weight, the technique, just being born with it on some level. They've figured out how to put that all together and we're sleeping motherfuckers. Straight Merck Street population, these poor motherfuckers here. That's what it was. Yes, sir. Um, as you said, man, we all love punches. We all love knockouts. When I got into the sport as a kid, it wasn't like Perno Whitaker or someone like that like attracted me to the sport. Uh, the first guy I vividly remember my dad showing me was Tommy Hearns. Because remember, when we've talked about it before, Tommy Hearns, made a couple of like pay-per-view appearances on the very beginning of a card. I think Thank um, you for fought Andrew, Tommy Hearns, my guy. Course, like when he fought Andrew Maynard and um, <laughs> fought uh, Dan Ward. So anyways, I remember the first time my dad, cause I don't even think he knew Hearns was going to be on the card. We just happened to put it on and he saw that Hearns was there. And that was the first time I ever saw him get like excited about something. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen him excited for other stuff during sports, but like for a boxing match, really like like about, about to like sit down for a good meal or something. He's like, yeah, like he got shit. really, really excited. And this was like, he was excited to show me him. And he was like, son, you don't understand. This is Tommy Hearns. You know what he does? It was like, he was like the first time he lands a right hand, he knocks the person silly and watch him score a first round knockout. And that's exactly what Hearns did. And he told me that my dad told me how he was going to do it. He was like, he measures and he goes like that with his hand and he goes, boom. And that's, you know, exactly where Hearns does, boom, 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 and then the guy goes spaghetti-legged and eventually flies. So watching that, seeing my dad get excited, I get really excited by it. And he, my dad telling me he's going to knock a guy in the first round, and then he ends up knocking the guy in the first round. That just created like a perfect storm for me. I got very excited and became obsessed with Tommy Hearns at the age of 9, 10 years old. And, um, you know, from there, the rest is kind of history. But, like, that's, you know, how it is. You they made compilation VHS tapes, like 30 great one-punch knockouts, 30 great one-punch knockouts, volume two. Like, you know, videos just dedicated to guys like Dempsey and Tyson and so on. You know, it's it's fascinating stuff, man. And like you said, if you're ringside for a fight and you get to witness a knockout, or if you're the one administering one, man, there's, it, it's, I get, you know, it's an incredible feeling. You talk to fighters and they describe when they talk about the best punch they ever landed or their perfect knockout and they say how they felt every bone and you know every bone in their body and everything movement just perfectly in the way their fist landed and you know the the combination of it all the way the guy finally goes down it, it's 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 pretty compelling shit it, it really is so yeah man it was a long time ago that we discussed this stuff since in the ensuing years since then there's been a lot of new punchers that have come on the scene some freakish ones in fact and um yeah they totally deserve to be in the mix too so it's good to rehash this type of thing it is and it's it's the kind of thing that I, you know people aren't going to get sick of it they're not going to be mad that we redid it or anything well, of you course know, not man. i doubt it anymore. it's been years over and not only that there's been like some there was some discussion about it on boxing twitter this week that's true it's been a week so you know and you you even mentioned uh you even mentioned that we were going to be doing the show and then a couple people responded kind of with their own which is great you know i'm all about that show i love it um, but yeah, I mean, just talking about fighters who can really lay a beat down, dude, is is great shit. Who's a fighter though 
that you think is like, you know, you think greatest puncher or whatever, top puncher, who's, who's somebody that you'd like to give some remem- I mean, remembrance it's to? Just a, it's just an easy one because everybody's very fond of him. But um, I guess the originator of uh, the original man down. Julian Jackson. If, if you really think about it, man, and for modern times, he even surpasses Tommy Hearns in most people's opinion, I would say, for just absolute cold cock and one punch. <clears throat> um that's what you know someone who's definitely benefited from youtube for sure yeah for sure absolutely man he's one of those guys that like in a in an era where people from jackson's era sometimes tend to be shitted on ricardo lopez um jackson instead has been shined you know his his stature has grown even more so man i think his aura and everything um did he have his limitations sure you know, there was holes in his game. He didn't have the best chin. He could be, you know, caught up in something. And if you were a good enough fighter and somehow are able to take his power, very, very hard to do, you know, you had a chance against him. But for that time period, man, from after he lost the first, um, we lost his first time to Mike McCallum and then went on a rampage from there up until um, he fought Gerald McClellan. I, dude, that was a run that just like, just unspeakable carnage that he just unleashed on the middleweight, on the middleweight division. There's actually a, a handful of instances too. I actually didn't even realize it until I had watched the knockouts more closely. He mm. that he did that shit like yeah. a, a handful of times. I thought it was just what it, whatever it was. Uh, Dennis. Uh, yeah, like, that's that? the most. That's the most. The Buster Drayton one's the most. Yeah, famous. yeah, yeah. Buster Drayton. Yeah. And I I thought it was only that one, but a couple of them. It's like you can barely see it because the camera's panning in on the knockout and not and not at him. But you could see his glove go like that on the edge of the screen. And sh- I mean, just dude, so cold. And then on top of that, you got him number one with that high top fade for about half of his career, maybe more. And then early on in his career, a lot of people might not know or might not remember that he used to do the moonwalk after every knockout. He'd sit there in the ring and do the moonwalk and shit. And he wasn't the only fighter. A bunch of fighters did the moonwalk. That shit was literally a cultural phenomenon for a couple of years. To be so fair. again, when people ever try to say, might you know, oh, uh, not Usher, excuse me, like Chris Brown or whoever, I don't, I can't keep up with these kids today. But whoever's supposed to be more popular than Michael Jackson, all I gotta tell you again, like you just mentioned, look at stuff like this, and also go back to that <laughs> one video that he did for in 1992 for HBO, which he did in like Hungary or somewhere, and half the audience collapsed. All he did was just turn his head before he even said a word. <laughs> So I don't, you can't touch the king of pop. I mean, no, I'm just, dude, you know, yeah, that's not even, I mean, I'm just talking popularity wise. I mean, I'm not talking his whole history and everything like that. So no whole other discussion, but when you're talking popularity, you cannot touch what no Michael question. Jackson was in the eighties and nineties. Not dude, dude, bro. Members only jackets literally were popular be, for almost no other reason than Michael Jackson. And they, people still wear that shit now. Totally. Like, I mean, they're stylish jackets, bro. I still own one. You just gotta know how to rock it. Yeah, if they made them in like four X, I'd wear one. But you know, they don't. <laughs> no, no. But dude, seriously, that nah, there's no comparison. Yeah. But I mean, oh. Julian Jackson, he was one of those fighters that took that bit uh, after just about every knockout earlier on in his career. And there are a whole bunch of knockouts too from like Don King undercards that are in front of fucking nobody. And like, you know, there's video of it. Thank goodness, or you know poor souls who got knocked out out in front of fucking 14 people but you know shit dude that's that's definitely one of the best like knockout compilations that i've made or whatever because each one is just like 
bah, just explosion, explosion, fucking you awful. Know, there's guys that were big punchers, massive punchers, but they weren't like one hitter quitters quite really. Like, you know, they were big punchers, but they were still more just overwhelming combo. Like Julian Jackson, he had his, he could just touch you. All he had to do was touch you with a jab and your face would crumble. Like, dude, he threw your guard, either hand. And the way he would throw, man, he just had this way with the torque of his punches and the technique. He had great technique, man. It was just, but every punch was made to main you. But he wasn't like going wild with it. He'd go out there and try to like take you out, you know, and go like home run swinging every punch. But every punch had its intention to take you out. And if he landed, you know, and most guys went in there, especially after he moved up to middleweight. Um, because junior middleweight really, really made his bones and you know, knocking the absolute hell out of uh, winning the title against Enchil Bake. Um obliterating poor Terry Norris who had success in round one and then had the nerve to think he was going to go out there and try to do more damage before Jackson just iced him and you know laid him made it look like made him look like you know a homicide victim on the corner right there yeah poor poor uh bake and chul or inchul bake the Korean dude that he won the title from that that guy at the end of that fight had no clue where he was he just had been absolute like he got hit with a truck dude like he was conscious but like he not was a really tough guy, bro. if you watch that fight he gave jackson the business that was a rough fight for a few and you rounds. could clear he was, you could tell he, he was clearly tough like he was yes. like you know he was hanging in there but dude, I mean, jackson he, was just like he it was almost like he got sick of it and he was like all right i'm like unloading yeah. on this guy he was falling all over the ring like he like a baby giraffe dude like just got born bro Poor you know Bake was a part of the group of like the, the korean fighters from the late 80s and early 90s who were just absolute animals in the ring and um, couldn't really hurt them. Just dog determination, strong as hell, and usually would just beat the living hell out of you. And, and Julian Jackson point, destroys the guy. So now yeah. we're sitting here saying, oh, actually, he was a pretty good fighter. But then you go watch that fight, and you're like, what? Julian Jackson kicked his ass. Trust me, he was yeah, actually like pretty it, good. Though, like you said, bro, if you watch that fight, the guy has, clearly has no idea what just happened to him. He's completely shell-shocked. It's like a video game when you get knocked out. I, in the I promise you, he was actually a pretty good fighter. It's just that Jackson beat the shit out of him. And then from three here, like, rounds you know, or whatever, Buster Drayton. Buster oh, Drayton dude. was a hell of a fighter, too. If you look at his record, you'd be like, eh, well, he doesn't look. No, trust me, Buster Drayton was the business. He's on TV he a lot, too. On TV a lot, fought out who's who of everybody. And he was durable as hell. He wasn't a guy that was really hurt often or very soft like that. And Jackson starched him, all right? Like, Drayton wasn't a guy that was knocked out, and Jackson comes over, and it's a beautiful knockout the way he catches him. And then Drayton just dramatically falls back with his mouthpiece still showing. And that's when Jackson does the whole man down thing but after that when he moves up i would have to say and most people would probably agree his most memorable moment and his most memorable knockout was against poor hell graham oh man it's a great call like the commentating call is a great call oh it's an all-time great call absolutely oh. it's it's incredible oh like it's just oh like, no oh, oh no, no. <laughs> This is what we That's what we were worried about. Worried about yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I mean, uh Harold Graham, we were just talking about him the other day for something, but such a, a funky style, like basically a very similar I style as yeah, that that from that Ingle gym, similar mm-hmm. style to Nassim Hamed, just a very like just a very tricky pain in the ass style. And he was a t- really tough guy to hit, uh, very strange rhythm, etc. 
And that was one of the things that Julian Jackson was vulnerable, vulnerable to was somebody who could move on him really well. If you moved on him, like you could keep him back. Terry Norris, you know, was kind of playing keep away and doing a pretty good job of, you know, pop, 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 step away, pop, 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 step away type stuff. Totally, totally. And Harold Graham had him, you know, and it was like, dang, you know, if this dude can do this all night and he didn't need to do it all night because Julian, Julian Jackson just caught a, a bad cut. His uh, his eye was swelling up, dude. And they were like, you know, we're about to stop this fight. He he had that, it was not competitive. He had that one round. That's it. They were, you know, they're liable, especially with all due respect, my British friends in the UK, you know, uh, an American coming over and the British dudes giving them the business. And, you know, it's a couple rounds in and it's like, ah, they're going to stop this shit next round. Yeah. He just came in, left his glove down, came in and left his glove down at the exact wrong time. Poor guy. And it's such a dramatic knockout because at that point, Jackson was a little hurt. Graham, Graham was going in for the finish. That's, you know, that's the thing about it. Kind of like similar when after, you know, Billy Conn hurt Joe Lewis and then the next round went in for the finish trying to go after him. And, you know, Lewis caught him and finally was able to take him out. Um, I'm not going to say Graham went in there. I mean, he had his hands down a little bit. Like, you know, Jackson went back into the ropes. Clearly, you know, he's a little stressed and dazed and he's been beat up for a few rounds graham has just been toying with him more or less and but graham did go in there to try to like finish him off and when he leaned in that's when jackson just caught him it was just it was just a perfect motion man when, when jackson catches him like you know it was a, it was a right hand correct he just yeah him it's like an, overhand right, it's and, like an overhand and right and graham is coming in with like an uppercut or something <laughs> one of those wonky yeah so he's moves, he's you know? like this and he's exactly. just totally exposed and Jackson just hits him with a beautiful shot right on the side of the chin, just pow, and he's unconscious before he even hit the mat. He's completely unconscious. Zip, gone. And he laid there, and he's sleeping, and uh, it's, you know, it's known as one of the most dramatic knockouts of the 90s, and it happened in 1990. So it's like, it's heavy stuff. Yeah, dude, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a pretty big fight. It's an important fight. Uh, Harold Graham can safely say one of the greatest fighters to never win a world title, easily one of the greatest British fighters to never win, win a world title. Um, and just came and he was snake bit, dude. You know, he uh, he got, got bad luck. You know, he maybe could have pulled something off against our, our dude Hatchet, Charles Brewer. But just was That's not a great fight too. That's not on YouTube. It used to be, but it's not. And I have yeah, I haven't seen that in a long time. I haven't looked for it, so that sucks. You know what's interesting too, is that um, as a kid, they it was it was mentioned. It was all it was in the newspaper and it was mentioned in a couple of magazines. That fight was supposed to be televised on the undercard of Briggs uh, Lennox Lewis. Hmm. And when I put on HBO that night, all excited to see my man Charles Brewer make his HBO debut. Guess what? There was no fight. You know what I mean? They just went right to the Lewis fight. I'm just kind of. And again, it's not like you know these things because it was like the internet and it was in its infancy. And so I'm just kind of like, and so I had to wait until the magazine come out to find out that it was a dramatic fight that, you know, he got dropped twice in. And this was, and by the way, this was a past his prime Graham who had come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had retired for a number of, for a few years, made a comeback, scored a very surprising stoppage of, um, I believe, a former Olympian, um, Chris Johnson or something like that. And then from there, had a couple of fights. He whipped up on Vinny Pazienza on Tuesday night fights. Um, do you remember the poster for that one too, by the way? 
where Graham is completely naked and he's kind of in it. Oh, has oh. Andrew, I think has severed heads and he's the devil. Is one of the wildest posters you will yeah, ever see. Yeah, dude. Yes. Now that you mentioned the the nudity, I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a, in a world, and we've like seen some obscene posters that still remains the wildest poster I've ever seen in my life. Anyways, Graham scores an easy decision over Pazienza, and then that moved them into the Brewer fight. And like you said, he was snake bin. He lost that one and then retired. But back to Jackson. Jackson then went on a tear in the middleweight division, man, and that's where he was really featured all the time on Showtime. You would see either as a main event or on the undercard, but either way, he was always flatlining somebody. The only person that ended up going the distance with him, and in retrospect showed Jackson's flaws, was a guy by the name of Thomas Tate. Thomas Tate, a longtime contender at middleweight and super middleweight, brother of a former champion Frank Tate, and all-around tough guy. The only guy that was able to starch him was Roy Jones. No shame in that, but... Tate was the only person that was able to take Jackson's bombs. He was hurt a number of times. Most guys would be, but he was also able to fire back. Jackson got tired because he wasn't used to going the distance like that, going many rounds. And he had gaps in his game that Tate was able to take advantage of, but Jackson otherwise won a comfortable decision, but it was a tough fight for him. But anyways, other than that little hiccup, he was destroying dudes left and right. But at that point, he finally found another guy who we could probably mention an all-time great punchers and a kindred spirit of that era general mcclellan yeah dude and definitely excuse me definitely one of those guys um an incredible puncher probably more of a heavy-handed like you know and you we talked about this actually you mentioned this when we talked about doing the show and kind of categorizing different types of punchers is uh you know julian jackson obviously had heavy hands but a lot of, and that's kind of what I brought up earlier too, a lot of it was his technique. He had really good technique on his punches, uh, you know, kind of whipped his shots. So there was some, there was a lot of speed going on there too. And that was part of his delivery and the and how effective he was. But uh, Gerald McClellan was a little bit more like, it wasn't that he was slow because he wasn't slow, but he was more of like a just pure heavy-handed puncher. Like he was a, thump- a brute. He was a bully. Yeah, a thumping puncher. Yep. Like to beat you down type of puncher could catch you with one shot, but if but he was more liable to like beat you down and uh, but, body puncher too. Oh, right? yeah, who was that? Jay Bell there. was that yeah. Jay Bell that he got with the, mm-hmm. the quick body body punch knockout? I think, yep, right early yeah. on, <laughs> yeah, dude. It was like you know, seconds in or something like that, one of the fastest knockouts, was- uh, the middleweight division or whatever, but just uh yeah definitely a bruising puncher no question but if you read up on of course ed just about anything behind the scenes with gerald and that's not to talk badly about his state now of course at all that's not my intention but just talking about the history behind everything going on it's kind of an icky guy kind of a troubled guy very 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 uh dark past for sure and there's a documentary out there um, on the whole Nigel Ben fight where, you know, he gets injured and everything that went on. And they go pretty in-depth, you know, in-depth talking about his past and what went on and his whole thing with, you know, what he did with dog fighting and all this other stuff. It's not good stuff. Not at all. Yeah. And being a veterinary technician for like, you know, 10 years or more, that obviously sits kind of totally pretty dead. funky with me. But just talking about purely who he was as a fighter, obviously very scary fighter. And, you know, was the person that Julian Jackson ran into and had the Nigel Ben fight not gone the way that it went, 
I mean, there's a lot of ifs there, a ton of ifs. Um, you know, that first round, a lot of ifs, dude. And then, you know, after that, so, so much fouling, so many rabbit punches. Uh, it's just a bad, bad fight, man. I, yeah, dude. It's, it's crazy to think because I actually, I watched that with my dad and I fell asleep early on. Like I watched the first round and then I think I fell asleep after like the third or fourth round or something. Then I, I don't know, I must have went to bed or whatever. But like that next morning, I asked him what happened and he was like, you know, he told me what happened. And I was like, wait, really? And then he explained the whole thing that went down. I was like, holy shit, you know, thinking to myself. And it's like, yeah, it's 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 a crazy scenario, man. Especially <clears throat> if you watch it now, it's still a dramatic fight. It's a great fight. It is. And uh, I'll that's, think it's that's something it's, it's hard to watch. Just kind of like Man yeah. City is a very good fight. Yeah, but I was like, just gonna say that's that second or third hand like tragedy, and not to downplay yeah. the deaths or injuries, of course, but many of these fights where those things happen truly were great fights. And, and they were. It was a very dramatic fight, and the crowd made dramatic and everything. But the way it ends. The way you see McClellan just blinking and the way he goes down and the, the way things unfold and Ferdy Pacheco, who's supposed to be a doctor of all things, you know, obviously, so you would think he would have some sympathy or know what the hell is going on. Instead, he keeps on yelling, McClellan quit, McClellan quit. I can't believe it. He just quit. He won't get up. No, no, no. He quit. Like, bro, clearly something's going on with him. You see his eye blinking incessantly. He doesn't know what's going on. Like, people are hovering around him, and you can't yabber on with, with Chez about how he quit. It, it, it just becomes an increasingly sad mess until he finally slips, you know, falls into the canvas, gets dressed, you know, and things get worse and worse. But regardless, that first fight, though, which luckily mm-hmm. nothing like that really happened, Jackson and McClellan was a hell of a war for the, you know, for the five rounds or so that lasted. That was a vicious, brutal, brutal fight. McClellan took some vicious punches from there and actually was able to take Jackson's punches. Um, not many, like we, again, not many people were ever able to do that. And he was able to dish it back too, man. But there was a couple of exchanges there where you see McClellan take a right hand and some body punches and you're just kind of like, oof. Yeah, can't take too many of those, man. No, and I think there was a low blow he took too that you just I think it was right before the knockout, actually, where he took like a massive low blow and then he came back, and that's where he scores that boom, boom. And Jackson dramatically goes flying back, comes up, and he has a jagged cut on his face, and he has no idea where he's at. And then McClellan finishes him off, and it's just like, you know, uh... oh man, yeah, he was a G Man was a massive puncher, dude. Massive, massive puncher. And good. And I was just going to say, in a way, uh, Julian Jackson just had the misfortune of between McCallum, McClellan, just coming in at the wrong time. <laughs> you know, he just, uh, those are two legitimately very, very good fighters. And it was going to be tougher for Jackson too, man, at middleweight, because at that point, I guess, you know, he was fading a little bit. Um, he did have some eye issues and other stuff going on. He was able to subsequently win the championship for a third time um after that fight after you know mcclellan moved up um he fought a guy by the name of um augustino or cardamone and um another one by this point jackson is kind of washed right you know his reflexes aren't as good the eye issues that he's had to deal with other stuff like that and cardamone wasn't a big puncher at all he was just one of those pesky european fighters but he was a good boxer he was a uh, quick-footed he had quick hands and probably a bad style matchup for Jackson in his prime, let alone, you know, how it was going to be at this point. 
So all things considered, Conor Mone was probably going to be favored in that fight. And early on, he was whooping on Jackson. You know, first round, Jackson got wobbled a couple of times. I think he got cut. You know, he was getting beat up. Just keep seeing a common thread here. Yes. Whooping up on him. He was whooping up on him. He was yeah. whooping up on him. And then he woke up. And it, it was like Cardamone heard him. And then round two, I think Cardamone heard him. Jackson backed up a little bit. Cardamone trying to move in. And then Jackson just whipped one of those right hands again. Bop! Before he even knew it, the guy just gets caught. It's a beautiful shot. And his head just snaps back. You know, like a baseball just getting hit. Bow! And he drops dramatically. Again, common thread like you said he, has, he wakes up he gets up he has no idea what the hell just happened to him you know, he just got the living shit just knocked out of him like he has no clue where he's at you know this fight took place in Worcester Massachusetts he might have a little been back in Italy at that point he had no idea what happened to him and Jackson you know just dusted him off became champion again he's literally only gotten more popular over the years dude like I mean yeah. every time uh you know every time post something about Julian Jackson or whatever. It always seems to get a lot of love. People, people uh, recognize him. Like I said, he's really benefited from having his fights on YouTube and shit like that. Cause there was that period in like the late nineties, early two thousands before stuff had really ramped up and you could see mm -hmm. fights regularly. You know, you, you didn't see his name mentioned all that much on like message boards or whatever. And that's not to say that nobody knew about him or remembered him. It's just that you couldn't like so readily or easily see like these, you couldn't, see these clips of him just straight dusting motherfuckers like just you know left and right all over the time you know now they're everywhere you could just go look for yourself so yeah he's gotten a lot of he's gotten a lot of mileage off of just absolutely sleeping dudes forever and that's great that's, I mean, that's basically his aura is what got him into the hall of fame you know and just having that reputation of just being an absolute monster puncher and stuff like that um, you know, the standards for the Hall of Fame and how, and how to get in now definitely like lightened up over the years, I, I would think. But um, Jackson would probably be better at more better of inclusion than I would say other guys who have gotten it. So, yeah, I have no problem with it. For sure. The, the bar has been lowered to a point where, unfortunately, that is a legitimate response where we're like, well, based on who's already in, what do you want me to say? You know, like, you know, it's. And, you Just know, Jackson didn't have a great ending to his career either. After he beat Cardamone, his yeah. first defense was against Quincy Taylor on an off-televised off card for one of those Don King pay-per-views. So what I meant, what I mean by that is that Don King would show that entire, pay, you know, would show the Tyson pay-per-view or whoever would, probably a Tyson pay-per-view. This is around 1996, 97. So um, they would show the pay-per-view. And then afterwards, after the whole show would be ended, they'd be like, oh, by the way, Quincy Taylor fought Julian Jackson for the WBC Midwight Championship before the show went on the air. Here, we're going to show it to you now. Yeah, yeah. They did that one. I remember another time they had William Joppy against Rodney Jones, which was a god-awful fight. <laughs> um, Keith Holmes, I think, against someone else. Like, this was the type of shit they would do. They would, that, that would be the one fight that, show, that they would show. But this one happened <laughs> to be Quincy Taylor against Julian Jackson. And Quincy Taylor, who was probably best known at that point, um, being Sugar Ray Leonard's sparring partner and the one that knocked the hell out of Leonard in sparring, I guess, before he fought Hagler. But um, he did the same thing to, uh, to Julian Jackson. So Jackson retired for a bit, came back, had a couple of fights, and then he fought on Vernal Phillips, who we've discussed before, a good fighter, but a person who would have got absolutely dusted by Jackson in his prime. And he knocked out Julian Jackson. And then after that, Julian Jackson finished his career against Anthony Baby Jones. 
and best known for you know lightweight who got absolutely knocked out by um, Edwin Rosario, who I'm sure we'll bring up later on, and beat up by Pernell Whitaker, a, a former lightweight. All right, this is a lightweight that moved up, that retired for a bit, then moved, then came back, fought at junior middleweight and middleweight because he gained a lot of weight and somehow knocked out Julian Jackson. So. Yeah, dude was his legs were done by that point. He was pretty washed, and that was about it, you know. And I mean, as far as the Hall of Fame debate goes, I I don't really have as big a problem with somebody like him getting in as I do with somebody who's. I mean, there's a whole host of fighters in the Hall of Fame who, excuse me, defeated one great fighter and did it when they were definitely not even anywhere close to their prime, and that was their one thing, and still got in. And it's yeah. kind of like, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's, it, I'm not going to argue it too hard. And I definitely got my entertainment out of Julian Jackson. That's for sure. Absolutely, man. He's one of my all-time favorites. He's just very likable guy, produced great memories, and just absolute monster. So so dialing the clock back a couple of years here. Go, we're going to go back to the 1800s. And mostly because I brought him up the first time that we talked about the greatest punchers of all time. Um, and definitely a very historic example, no question. And we don't have to spend a ton of time talking about him. However, I do, you know, stuff like this is fun. And there are a couple of, uh, fights on his ledger that are super fun to talk about. And that's Joe Koyensky. Um, so, I mean, definitely a legendary kind of fighter. Obviously, uh, we're pretty short on video and pretty short on stuff like that for his examples of knowing exactly what to look at. Actually, is that there, are there any fights of his that are known to be filmed? Not to my knowledge. Nah, I mean, like, and if and if they are, they got to be like you know, clips or something like that at best. Uh, but I, I have, I couldn't tell you that I've looked. I do know what he looks like because I've seen tons of photos of him over oh, the years, tons of the ring or whatever. But um, you know, probably the most legendary thing that Joe Koyensky ever did, of course, was knock out Jack Johnson. And as the story goes. Uh, down in Galveston, Joe Koyansky knocks out Jack Johnson, a very young in his career, Jack Johnson. They both get arrested not very quickly after the fight because in you know various jurisdictions, there's questions about whether or not boxing itself is legal. But then on top of that, in other jurisdictions, a white person fighting a black person professionally, you know, in, in uh, for money might not be legal, et cetera. And so they're both arrested and thrown in a jail. And as the popular kind of urban legend goes, Joe Koyensky totally showed Jack Johnson how to box while they're in jail and shit like that. I don't know how you could it, it all ascertain that, but whatever, you know, people like to attribute the cool things that black people did back onto white people if they can. So I, I kind of figure that that's pretty much just what it is, but nonetheless, Joe Koyansky did indeed knock out a young, younger Jack Johnson. And there is a very cool photo of them both in this jail cell with like the jailers and shit on either side of them with rifles and shit like that. That was like a doctored photo. That was like a posed photo or something. I think it is a posed photo, but it's not like a, it's, it's a real photo, but like you also kind movie. of have to consider about you kind of have to consider how photos were taken in those days. You didn't just have a like, all right, geez, you know, oh, you had to have a whole fucking setup. There's that thing that you hold and then the curtain and the hold on right there, you know, wrap this shit around this thing. So, I mean, you know, of course, they sure they had to pose for it and whatnot. And they knew what was what. And a lot of it was for publicity. 
but uh because Koyensky by that time was already famous it's not like nobody knew who he who he was so in any case uh that's probably the most you know the the craziest thing or the most well-known thing as far as the the boxing legends in history goes with Joe Koyensky but he was a fairly small fighter for a heavyweight he was definitely light heavyweight sized at best and nonetheless was taking on fighters who were much larger than he was either in height and in or in weight and some of them he still managed to knock out Bob um what's his name Frank Childs I think he knocked out Barb Bob Armstrong uh, you know, he knocked out a whole number of much larger fighters for sure that he fought. And, and it was actually a fairly tough era. It was a very, very, very tough era for fighters back in the day, my dude. Like we've discussed it, man. Not only did it was, it was kind of still an outlaw time where, you know, boxing was like illegal in a lot of places and things were just, you know, kind of outlawed and wild west. But like for that era of the heavyweight division, man, there was a lot of bad man pajamas. You had um james j corbett was still on this was on the scene kowinski and him had a battle on a barge of all on a ways. fucking right. boat on i'm a on boat. a boat motherfucker <laughs> yeah and corbett said that kowinski like you know almost knocked him out like gave him one of his toughest fights like corbett ended up you know beating him but it was a tough as nails fight for him um, how, how wild is that i'm sorry to interrupt but i just oh, gotta like we have to talk about the boat fight for a second because people yeah, no, it's huge <laughs> well because i imagine people are gonna be like wait what what do you why aren't you going into this well i mean that's what we're talking about the error for this is like the type of shit that was like normal for back then because you had to hold fights on places like that because boxing was not legal in most places especially in big cities where they you know it was still known as like a gangster's type sport well still is but even more so back then and, and in like california crazy. in california it was straight wild west so yeah, they were like you totally. know we'll send people after you and they didn't want anything like that so when you hear about fights like bob fitzsimmons against peter mara for the heavyweight championship and they're holding it in the middle like some in between place between mexico and the u.s in the middle of nowhere because they had to do that they just had to pitch a fight pitch a 10 hey you know the cops are coming they had to build it up take it away and go run off somewhere else to go build something else like, if you had to build it in the middle of a field because nothing else was going to happen and you wanted this fight to happen, it, like, that's what was going to go down. You would get arrested immediately in the middle of a fight. The police could show up, raid it. Everyone gets arrested, including the fighters. All kinds of shit goes down. Like, it was a crazy time to be a fighter and to be a really good fighter, too, because you had tip-top competition and you were getting thrown to the wolves relatively early in your career. I, you know... Yeah, it's it's like the whole what's it called uh, Step Brothers. You know, like yeah. I seen him eat a guy's dick. It was in international waters. They can't prosecute. No, same shit. <laughs> you know, they can't fucking come after him because they're out of the fucking out and fighting on a boat and in the middle of the water. So you know, trying to avoid the cops rolling up on him. And a large part of this too was the fact that uh, the vast majority of the money for fights at this in this era was coming from betting and ringside betting and stuff like that. And that shit ain't getting taxed. So if that shit ain't getting taxed, the government's coming after your ass, you know, like you can't be making money on tax. So yeah, you know, they would be sending cops after him. Sorry. I had to talk about the boat thing. Cause that should, well, I mean, it's a fascinating it's a thing. slice this of history. Early, I love that was shit. super early in Corbett's career. This was early in Kowinski's career. They both kind of come, they both came from the same era, the early 1890s. Um, Fitzsimmons, excuse me, Fitzsimmons. Corbett obviously is the one that succeeded and knocked out John L. Sullivan, kind of like taking boxing finally from the grasp of the bare knuckle era. Even though Sullivan had like, you know, accepted the the gloves and preferred to use. Yeah, them. it's kind of like he was, still, he was more yeah. on the cusp of the old timers, while Corbett was looked upon as the more modern. 
And so that was, you know, they were a part of that new era. He's and, a good dresser, and he's handsome, and he's yeah, like supposedly well learned. You know, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And going on the on the vaudeville circuit and doing plays and all that, and becoming you know elegant. Where Sullivan was always challenging people to fights and bars and just getting belligerent. Yeah, dude was like a drinker and shit. He was like, oh, I don't give yeah, a fuck. Was, yeah, mean, yeah, tough, tough, crude guy. So Kowinski though fought a who's who of his time, man. Probably one of his most um, impressive performances was that he fought a draw with um, Jim Jeffries. Jim Jeffries, obviously, in, in the early days before uh, he retired and came back to fought Jack Johnson, was looked upon as the toughest, strongest, biggest, meanest, baddest man on the planet, even more so than Sullivan, because he retired undefeated and he was an absolute monster in the ring. And Kowinski, who was a lot, lot smaller than Jeffries, because Jeffries was a big heavyweight for his time, held his own with him, beat him up, hurt him a number of times, and it was a very bruising fight, which there was footage of it, but, you know, by all accounts, he even could have won that fight. So, yeah. I mean, there's things like that. He knocked out uh, the original George Godfrey, not the one that was Jack Dempsey's foreign partner, but the original one from back yeah, in the yeah. day. Um, you know, and he had a rivalry with a guy who was also an all-time great puncher in Buffett Simmons. So That's right, yep. Yeah, dude. Uh, it, I think that a lot of it is maybe a misnomer and that he's he wasn't so much a massive puncher as he was very skilled. He mm-hmm. was very skilled and knew how to place his punches more than he was like heavy handed or whatever. And so that's what allowed him to actually fight and be fairly successful against a number of bigger fighters. And yeah, like I said, we don't have to spend a ton of time on him, but we did bring him up. And I do like walk. I like talking about like older eras too, because. Oh, of um, course, man. We've talked about that before, how fascinating it was the lightweight division of the turn of the century, how a lot of these guys from the 1890s hung on to the turn of the century and actually fought up until like, you know, 1905, 1910, especially Peter Maurer, who seemed to never go away. And if you look at his record, you're just like, holy shit. And um, he had a very long record, man. It's, it's pretty crazy. And definitely Especially, very old-timey, boxery-looking guy, too, with the twirled <laughs> mustache and shit. Complete, yeah, man. Stereoty- All those tattoos you see people have of, like, the stereotypical fighter in the pose. You're, like, doing this yeah, shit, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's Peter Maurer, yeah. But um, just a very, very tough guy, man. And Kowinski was one of those guys. I love to talk about it because I think it's hilarious. He held a grudge with, with Fitzsimmons all the way to his death. And Kowinski lived up until like, you know, the 40s or so, right? So he lived a pretty long life considering. And Fitzsimmons obviously had died decades before that. I think he died pretty young, right? Yeah, yeah, much younger for sure. Yeah. And so even even at his old age, man, when he had cancer and he was like, you know, in his, uh, around like 75 years old and they ask him about Fitzsimmons and you hear Kowinski talking, <sighs> That Fitzsimmons, you can never trust him. He was an outright scoundrel. He was this and that. He cheated us in our fight. And if you saw what he did with Gus Rulin, he cheated in that fight too. He was a cur. You can never trust him. He, you know, he would renege on bets and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like he hated him. He absolutely hated him. It's hilarious. <laughs> like yeah, talk, some of these fools. Bad bad. About him. He was talked bad about uh, Fitzsimmons' manager. He was just saying how they couldn't trust anything they wanted to do. He was still a scoundrel. He was like, I'm sure Fitzsimmons would try to say stuff nice about me, but he's dead and he can't do this or that. I'm just like, damn. These fools back then were having straight blood feuds, dude. Yeah. Like, you know, if, if my son doesn't hate your son, you're dead to me. <laughs> what the fuck? Fucking crazy ass. Fucking. Yeah, dude. These like Ad Wolgast and Battling Nelson. Like these fools were just hating each other. Hilarious. Totally, man. It's, 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 really, it's, it, it's really fascinating to read that type of stuff and to hear like the crazy shit that goes on with it. You know what I mean? But like you said, dude, Kowinski fought everybody that there was the fight in his era. 
um, remains a legend. There's tons of photos out there of him, like you said, man. I remember one. Do you remember the uh, the old website? Not not JL Sports Inc., but um, Antiquities of the Prize Ring. Oh yeah, of course. Way back, right? Um, they, he used to sell a Kowinski portrait, like a giant one that was framed. But it was the coolest looking thing because he was in a full on suit and looking all regal and shit. He was sitting in a chair, but it was like something that clearly had been sitting in someone's house for decades. I think and I have that. Probably. Right? Like, I mean, not like that, like huge or whatever. Yeah, but yeah, I, but I think something. I have that photo. Yeah, I think I do. I think it's that one. Yeah, he's so. got like a hat on and it's all tilted forward and he's all yeah, looking fucking, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. like a pimp and shit. Yeah, yeah, I got that photo. But yeah, man, you know, he, not only that, he lived a pretty long and colorful life. So interesting. Yeah, it's a good dude. call. For sure. And like I said, it was a part of it. It was at least that we had brought him up on that very first show. So I wanted to talk about him again because there was some good shit to talk about. But like I said, many other punchers was another one. Um, we're gonna go all the way back, um, many divisions below, my friend, <laughs> uh, and talk about, you know, um, actually two guys, for that matter, not just one, but two, who ended up, you know, they competed in the same division of the 70s, and at that point when they ended up fighting each other, I think only one person had gone the distance, and uh, Jesus Christ, almost like 80 something, 90 fights. Talk about the Z boys. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, okay, this yeah. is going to be only like one of like maybe two fights or something. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. And they're Carlos right around Arate, the same time. So, Carlos Arate and Alfonso Zamora. If you oh, want to talk man. about all time great punches, they have to be in the mix. Absolutely, dude. There's another case of like, I'm so grateful that we are able to see so many of these fighters on youtube now dude just because especially their obscure fights too it's not just like their main ones a yeah. lot of other made big fights that you would only read about you know just in either clips or box rec whatever it is now they're starting to pop up on youtube randomly even if it's not the full fight just like clips of them starting to pop up absolutely dude yeah i mean it's it's so it's so cool being able to actually like because some of the even like uh zarate and like zamora like these guys were guys where I'm not going to lie and be like, oh, my dad used to tell me about these guys or something like that. But when I was kind of young in my fandom or whatever, I remember when I was learning from the older fans, like people mm -hmm. who were older than me, and they were saying, yeah, this is who you should check out. You should find tapes of this person. You, know, you should look up this guy. You know, th these were the kinds of fighters that I would often hear about, like Carlos Zarate, you know, like uh, Lupe Pintor, like these guys who were talked about a lot and were super popular or famous back then but then you know we just didn't have the advent of being able to replay videos the way we do now and so oh. i'm so grateful that we're able to see like these kinds of fighters like canyas and like man alfonso somora is a guy who probably even now slides under the radar as far as punchers and as far as action fighters and stuff like that because his name just you know it doesn't carry nearly as well but dude these guys were brutal brutal fighters Zamora flamed out pretty quickly, you know. That's, that's true. Thing. He did. Yeah, he didn't have the longevity. Um, that's true. You know, he he really didn't. You know, and he and it was a style too. Zamora's style was a little bit different from Zarate. Uh, Zarate's style wasn't just walking in there, knock you out, slugging type guy. He, he was pretty methodical in his approach. Yeah, you know I mean, kept his guard high, um, placed his punches very well, but everything was just placed well. And he was a tall, lanky guy, kind of built like Arguello, you know, and just sharp just really really sharp he just chopped you up 
you know, he just beat you up. He stopped you like, and you couldn't really outbox him because he was tall and he was lanky and everything was well-placed. And it was really, it wasn't like one punch knockout power, but like everything would hurt. You know what I mean? You can tell these guys were just visibly beat up and they just couldn't do anything with him. And he just had the superiority about him. And by the time, you know, he would end up knocking these guys out. Some of them who had no business in the ring with him. Like, um, uh, there was a South African fighter. I, I forgot who it was that had absolutely no business being in the ring with him. And Zarate just like stopped him in, like two rounds or whatever it was. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, John Mensa. Mensa. Yeah, yeah, John. Yeah, 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 John Mensa. Yeah, yeah, Mensa Capola Capola Longo. That's what I was thinking. And you know, he comes in with a BS record. You walk in, you clearly you can see he has no idea how to fight. And Zarate treated him like a child and just kind of stomped him and took him out really quickly. But that's for example for that. But if there was like a really good fighter too like a person you know um like albert like albert davia who ended up becoming champion soon after that a few years after that zarate would take his time with him but still would just absolutely beat him up and just you know by the time the fight would be over the guy would just look utterly defeated dominated sliced up hurt yeah cooked went through a grinder or some shit grinder yeah man he just you know his uppercuts were beautiful his jab was great his right hand everything just came one after the other his body shots were just draining everything was perfect with him and um, Zamora was just a whirling dervish, you know what I mean? Came in, left hook, a blazing, like the typical style that people were like, oh, Mexican style, Mexican style. Well, Zamora, I guess, would be that type of thing that people are describing because he was a whirling dervish in the ring, man. He was a beast. And most guys he was able to overwhelm because he had amazing power in his hook. Sure, he had great power in his right hand, and he had tools and stuff like that. He was a fast puncher, and he was just really good at what he did. But his left hook is as most Mexican fighters, was his bread and butter. And it left a lot of damage in his wake up into this Rate fight, like a lot of damage. Everyone that he fought, you know, he just kind of laid to waste easy. 78, <clears throat> excuse me, 78 wins between them and, and 74 knockouts. Yeah. That's Insane. amazing, dude. <laughs> it's seriously amazing. And even, in, even going forward, uh, Zarate by the end of his career, fought 70 times, 7-0, and had only gone to a decision. It, it, he had only seen a decision five times. <laughs> so he had only gone to the end of a fight and listened to an announcer announce the decision five times in 70 fights, dude. That's crazy. And I mean, we I've mentioned this before as far as the punchers go. And I also just posted a video yesterday about like the top five knockout record or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, just I had a little bit of fun or whatever. Um, and I mean, you look through these guys' records, you look through Billy Bird's record, you look through Joe Buck's record, or I'm sorry, Buck's Joe Buck, uh, Buck Smith. <laughs> what am I talking about? But you look, you go through Buck Smith's record, and it's like, dude, it's like can after can after bum after can, with all due respect. Midwest, baby. But I mean, you know, you cannot build up this many knockouts, knocking out nothing but the best. It's it's just you can't do it. However, and like I said, this is what I've said before, and I'll stand by it. I still feel it, and I'll you know think it's absolutely one hundred percent the truth. And this also figures into when I talk about you know always uh, when I address managers and advisors and shit like that, and I'm saying if you ever have a young unbeaten fighter, and there's a chance to have them face a South American puncher with a high knockout ratio, don't do it. Just don't do it ever. Don't just don't 
but the same kind of thing is like, you know, yeah, they might have knocked out like 40 fucking cans, but that's still 40 human beings. And that's what I'm saying is like, you might've, these guys might've knocked out 129 total bozos, but that's still 129 bozos. You could still, obviously somebody's punching if you fucking score that many knockouts. So, you know, you look at like uh Zarate's record and yeah, dude, there's obviously a bunch of fighters on there. They almost, they didn't belong in the ring with them, but you know, like I said, you know, you go through a number of fighters who have a lot of volume and that is always the case. Dude, and at that point, man, by the late seventies, Zarate, wait, well, first off, let's talk about the fight with the Z boys first, right? Because if, when you think about it, when that fight took place, that honestly in 1977, that fight was huge back then. That was already really, really, you know, that was one of the first, I would say for, we've talked about from the seventies up until today, that was one of the first like little guy fights that like the general boxing population, everybody, everybody was really, really excited about. I mean, especially obviously on the West Coast, it was huge, huge. Yeah. Huge. But massive the forum world fight. in general was definitely interested in going on with that because, like you said, man, the amount, the record between those two, the fact that they shared the same division, both of them from Mexico, both of them had a rivalry going on already between their trainers and everything else that went on with them. There was a whole backstory to this thing. And the fact that there was just a guaranteed knockout in this fight, both of them just had incredible records. Everyone had just laid everyone else to waste. Now they're going to fight head to head. And what looked to be a unification fight obviously couldn't be that because the WBC and WBA were already assholes back then too and weren't going to play nice with each other. So it had to be a non-title fight. 1976 oh. was the start of, and the, so the, sorry to interrupt you, I apologize. Oh, but 1977, just for a little bit of background, this was when this fight happened, Zarate Zamora. And then 1976, the year before, was the year that the WBA and WBC had this big fucking stupid spat where they basically said, yeah, we're not going to rank your guy. You're not going to rank guy. You're not going to be that. And so they just decided to not see not eye to eye forever. Basically, that was so they had been split before that, but that was when they were like officially like fuck this. So it was a big mess, dude. For like so five, many fights that they just screwed for up like five they, straight years. For like five, maybe a little more straight they years. They didn't want to deal with each other. And yeah, anytime dude. Anytime they were even so if dumb. Sniffed at having a fight with the other champion, they threw a big hissy fit about it and threatened to sue you. And Don King would get in the middle of it and tell you that you know because he always had his hand in the cookie yeah. jar or something. So let's, so, and this is exactly why I say chill with the whole, like, back in the 70s when there was one champion type of shit. I'm just, shut up, yeah. dude. You don't know what you're talking about. There was all, there's always been rancor and rife and fucking chaos, bro. We love it. Let's yeah. go. Well, it should have been a unification fight that would have been 15 rounds instead of end up becoming a 10 round non title fight, which is absolute horseshit. But hey, who cares? All right. Everybody knows if it goes 10, 15, it, everybody knows it's not going to go that long. The fact that they're going to fight each other. Yeah, they took care of it anyway, so it's okay, but still. So everybody knows this is the fight that matters, all right? So, of course, tensions are really high. Everything's going crazy. Round one starts. What happens? They're kind of feeling each other out. Zamora's a little bit more aggressive. Zarate's kind of, you know, feeling out a little bit. All of a sudden, some crazy asshole fan runs in the ring out of blue. Why? Because that's, that's L it's L.A. It's the 70s. This is boxing. It's a very, very important yeah. fight. Of course, he's going to do that. He runs in. I remember he's wearing a wife beater, I believe, right? A wife beater and some boxer shorts, <laughs> something like that. And so he looks ridiculous to begin with. Like, who the fuck's going to go to a fight like that? So hops in the ring. Looks like he's trying to break them up, I believe it was, right? Like, he yeah, he was like, he was like running into the action or something. It was yeah, like, what yeah. are you doing? He's over there, like, what are you doing? So he's in the middle of it before a police just come in and like apprehend him and hopefully brought him in the back and beat the hell out of him. 
with Eileen Eaton watching. Yeah, she probably told him to. Yeah, she probably. Yeah, I bet you she got her kiss son Judo Jean LaBelle to go over and stretch the shit out of him. Yeah, she got a little in. <laughs> got a little in on there. Absolutely, I could just picture her with her purse and everything. <laughs> you know, we were we were just talking a couple with the with the uh, matinee idols kind of episode. We were talking about L.A. boxing and that yeah. in that era and stuff and how wild it was, dude. You know, uh, Lionel. This was a couple of years before that, about ten years before that. But Lionel Rose uh, versus Chucho Castillo led to a massive riot, riot at the exact yeah. same venue at the Forum, and it, you know, people were, like setting shit on fire and it's like parking cars in the parking lot getting smashed and shit. So I'm just saying, like, you know, it's not really that surprising that there was some chaotic shit going on at the Forum in LA in 1970s. But yeah, uh, yeah, fan comes in, he's trying to get in on the action and whatnot. And also, like you were mentioning, a big part of this was that Zamora's dad was, uh, yeah, it was his dad or his uncle or his dad was a big, like, a big part of the drama of the behind the scenes thing or whatever. And, and yeah, like you said, there was some uh, rivalry with the trainers and, yeah, dude, what a mess. At least the fight, at least the fight after that point delivered, though. No, it did. Absolutely, man. Like, Zamora was a bad, like, again a fast, really, really massive puncher, former Olympian silver medalist. Like, he was a legit guy, as legit as it can be. Like I said, he might have flamed out early, but at his peak, he was just a monster. And Zarate was just, again, as good as Zamora was at that point, and he probably would have beat a lot of guys that night, Zarate was bigger, stronger, and just overall better. Everything that Zamora could do, Zarate could just do a little bit more, a little bit better. And he just had that build that he was able to neutralize Zamora too. You know, no one at that point was able to neutralize Zamora, and rightfully so. He just blew right through you. But Zarate had that build where he was able to keep him away. He was able to do stuff like that. And he, even when they got close, he, he showed his strength and superiority. And like we said, man, after a few rounds of getting beat up by Zarate and just taking uh, an, an array of his power punches, you know, you get broken. And that's what happened to Zamora. He got broken. Yeah, he uh, uh, Zarate wound up stunning him and kind of like rocking him a handful of times in the fight. And Zamora was dangerous, though. That's the thing sure. is that like you know you stun him or push him back. He was he was that. I'm not comparing him to Julian Jackson, but the kind of guy where like if you pushed him back, you needed to be careful. You know, he could whip something out at you. But it like you said, Zarate's jab and his reach was really what like you know kept Zamora on the end of his punches. And you just you could see just even in photos, Zarate's like like a triangle, the way that he's shaped, you know, oh, just a yeah. big triangle. And uh, so he really knew how to get leverage on those shots. And you could see some of the shots he's landing kind of in that kind of close mid-ish range was just rough. And then what's and Zamora gave like you said, he gave a good account of it, uh, for himself. It was a fight that did deliver. Was it as like wild and exciting and dramatic as people wanted it to be? I mean, not quite. Yeah, not it as was, back and forth anyway. Not as back and forth anyways. But I mean, they had its good moments. Zamora did land a few good punches in the mm. fight. But Zarate was never like not really in control. Exactly. And when he really took over control, that's when Zamora just kind of fell apart. And that's when the fight stopped. But that's not how the drama, you know, the drama and the fight itself hadn't really ended at that point. There was still a third part. First, you had the, the weird fan jumping in the ring in the boxer shorts who got beat up by the security. And then the fight ends. And now afterwards, Zamora's dad ends up trying to attack Zarate's, uh, Zarate's trainer because he thought that Zarate's trainer had tampered with the gloves of some sort because he couldn't believe that his kid got whooped so easily. Yeah, he start, yeah, he start like, uh, you know, like shoving shit on, like toward him and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
like he started going over, he tried attacking him, and a whole almost a whole riot broke out in the LA forum because of that. If Zarate, if Zamora was able to get a hold of Zarate's dad and land some blows, or if Zarate came and punched Zamora's dad in the face, or some shit crazy like that happened, guarantee you a riot would have broke out. All oh, hell yeah, would have man. broken loose, and the place would have burned down. Yeah, and we would have seen ninety three separate headlines about another black eye for boxing. God damn totally, it, man. Man, but, they would have had a whole man. thing in the, in the Matt LeBeau magazine talking about that. <laughs> Good but, Lord. Zarate, yeah, you know, he, after that, man, he almost did look invincible because by the late 70s, like you said, you know, he was still at his peak by 78, 79, man. He was looked upon as one of those guys that if not only was he, he almost not just bypassing Junior Featherweight, people were talking about how he would do against, potentially against Danny Lopez. But first off, he was going to fight a guy by the name of Wilfredo Gomez, another massive monster puncher at that point, who at this point, I would have to say, you know, and I'm sure you would agree with me, was especially in 1978, was uh, relatively unknown to the masses. I mean, he had been champion for a minute. You know, he had an incredible record at that point, 21-0, 21-knockouts. His only, his only blemish was a jar in his first pro fight. And... um. But most people thought at that point, even though he had a record like that, this is going to be like another Zarate Zamora, if anything, because Zarate is a legend. You know, no one's been able to do anything with him. This is just going to be, he's going to move up the way. He's going to stop Gomez, who's, you know, a young kid, a good fighter, but he has no business being in the ring with him. And, you know, Zarate will march on to greatness. But that didn't quite happen. In fact, that didn't happen at all. In fact, there was an absolute massacre that happened in Puerto Rico that night involved with Gomez thrashing the shit out of Zarate. Yeah, dude. You know, you know, Wilfredo Gomez had mostly fought in Puerto Rico at this at this point, you know. Mm-hmm. And I want to say he had fought uh, Royal Kobayashi in Japan or something like that. He made a defense against Kobayashi in Japan, I think. Okay. But and it's actually I uh one of the funny things about that too is that if you watch the video of that fight assuming it's still on YouTube, at the end of that fight, dude, like uh they are the way that he and his team celebrate are it's almost like out of character because you know we've seen a lot of the fights from uh from japan and stuff like that and it's not always the case that the arenas are quiet but they usually are like not always but a lot and in this case it was fairly quiet and then after he wins they celebrate and it's like almost like everybody's quiet but just his team who's going "Ah!" it's like oh my god dude you guys are nuts but um, yeah, you know, Gomez was a really good combination puncher, a heavy-handed fighter, a uh, guy who like probably should have brilliant. moved his absolutely brilliant. Probably should have moved his head a little bit more than than he did, but also he was. I think that the reason for that was because he believed in his power. You know what I'm saying? Like there are fighters who like they can punch, but they don't believe in their power, or at least not as much as they should. He believed in his power. He punched through people you know like he was like you're gonna fall like sooner or later i'm gonna land and you're gonna go down and that was the kind of fighter he he was uh and so by that time by the time he fought zarate i think that there was definitely more familiarity especially among american fans or well excuse me because he's puerto rican so let not let me not be ignorant but uh mainland american fans who would comprise the vast majority of u.s tv fight fans of course and a large chunk of those are going to be in southern california at this point 
So obviously they're going to be far more familiar with Zarate than they are Gomez just, and you know, not to excuse them, but that's just going to be the case a lot of the time, but clearly Gomez, you know, came onto the scene with a vengeance there. Yeah, dude. And you know, it's one of those weird occasions too, where like Zarate moved up in weight, but somehow still couldn't make weight either. Like it took him a number of attempts to make weight for that fight. And Gomez, of course, who always had, yeah fools i've been hearing it dude they've been going off what's going on dude, <laughs> moving bodies up there i think i don't know it's insane but anyways um dude that really just messed up my train of thought for a second hold on <laughs> um damn what are they doing where's my water shit that just pissed me off um new york living people that's what we're saying don't go to new york yeah seriously don't it's not worth it so Gomez always had weight issues himself, but like, you know, Zarate apparently said he had the flu or something going on with him before this fight. But anyways, he claimed he wasn't really 100%. Um, tensions were really, really high. Obviously, his fights happened in Puerto Rico, but it's Puerto Rico and Mexico. They've always had a very, very, you know, fierce rivalry in boxing. And this one was high stakes. Even though Gomez wasn't really well known throughout the world of the masses yet, he soon would be, but he was, you know, a already massively popular in Puerto Rico. People were rabid about this fight. People wanted to see Zarate's head on a platter. Zarate surprisingly won an enemy territory for this fight and, you know, very confident in himself. And it was a very, it was a good fight for a few rounds. Like Zarate, you know, did is still one of those type of guys that like he he was a legend. I mean he has a very great style for himself and he imposed it and Gomez had to take a little bit to try to, you know, figure out, figure him out. But once he did, man, he started piecing him up. He was faster than Zarate. He was stronger than Zarate. And once he started, like, you know, landing combinations and started feeling really comfortable what he was able to do, he just completely, like, unraveled them. You know, Zarate did have his moments, too. He did land a few combinations, and, you know, he was a vicious guy, and they had some fierce exchanges. But every time, you know, Zarate would try to go for something, Gomez would land, like, a check left hook, or you see him, because he was really good at stuff like that, counterpunching, brilliant counterpuncher, moving in, jabbing right hand. Zarate would try to move in another right hand, another check left hook, uppercuts, everything. Pretty soon, Zarate, who was so good at just overwhelming his opponents, was getting overwhelmed by Gomez. He was completely frazzled by him. And then by, like, round four or whatever it was, that's when Gomez really turned on his heat. For the first three rounds, he was still just, like, working each round. He was building it, building it. And even though he was kind of in control, by round four, Gomez in his prime, who was an absolute whirlwind, that's when he just turned on the heat. Zarate had no idea what the hell to do with him. He just got the shit kicked out of him after that. It was bad. And the boxing world was shocked. You know, this was a shocking turnaround. Like we said, man, Gomez was undefeated and he was known as like a legit fighter, but Zarate was supposed to be on another level. Pound for pound, he was looked upon by 78, um, if not the best fighter on the planet, probably on, you know, number two or number three, I would say, right? Well, he's he definitely had to be up there. He's 52-0, and 0, and with yeah. that many knockouts, Jesus. I mean, so... For Gomez to be able to do that and how dominating as it was, man, you know, Zarate, that was like a big blow to him, not only physically, but to his ego and to the country and everything as well. Like that was really just like, that never happened to him before, you know? So like you said, he has another defense, but by the time he fought Lupe Pintor, something clearly was missing from him at that point. Um, it, it just, the spark wasn't really there. You know, if you've watched the fight with Pintor, everybody would say it's now an out robbery. And it, and it kind of more or less is. I mean, it's not, it's a fight that Zarate definitely won but i don't know if it's as much of a wide decision as everyone thinks it was but 
regardless, that was like the icing on the cake. You know, the Gomez beatdown was the one that really just kind of like put his reverse and just like, holy shit, you know what I mean? And then losing that fight to, uh, losing the fight to Pintor was really just like a, because that was such a fight that he felt he controlled everybody else and was just like, he won that. Yeah, that shit and broke him. It really, really broke him. I mean, totally everyone. He was like disgusted. Game. And rightfully so, man. Everyone was like pissed off by that decision. Even Pintor seemed surprised by it. Like, if you watch the decision, Pinch was kind of like, well, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, they were, and, I, and I'm not looking at it right now, but after I remember too, there was some weird ass scores for that fight. Like, everything just seemed really fishy and weird, you know? But um, regardless, yeah, Zarate was really crushed. That was it for him. He was done. And once he, re- and he retired for a number of years. And, but something, you know, some kind of spark made him want to come back. And that was the majority, too. When he said when he ended up retiring and he had, like, a few decision wins, that's the majority of the time where he went, like, either late rounds of decisions was when he came back. So by the time he came back, he was way past it. You know what I mean? 36, 37 years old. His already majorly receding hairline. He looked like an old guy. But he could still fight. And after a couple of hiccups in his early, early on in his, um, in his comeback, you know, he went on a streak, just knocking out a bunch of guys. If you look at him, same thing, you know, no world beaters, just kind of guys that were supposed to lose to him. But he's gaining experience. He's gaining traction, kind of doing the George Foreman route, staying active, staying busy. Eventually, he's going to move up and get a big fight. And big fights he ended up getting. Um, what Hall of Fame fighters, nonetheless, who uh, we've discussed in past shows. First one was uh, Jeff Fennick. Jeff Fennick, obviously, a monster rampaging guy, Mahler, who... Um, probably wasn't going to be stopped by, you know, who would probably give a prime Zarate absolute hell, let alone one that's way past his best. So I think that fight got stopped on a cut or something like that, technical decision. But anyways, Fennec kind of beat him up throughout it. And then Zarate ends up fighting soon after that Daniel Zaragoza, one of our favorites. And Zarate definitely would have beat Zaragoza. There's no question about that in my mind. But at this point, by 1988 or whenever around the fight when that took place, we're not talking about it's not his prime at all now. Zarate's <clears throat> pushing 40. He's been through the ringer. He's had a very long career. He's Zaragoza is in his prime at this point, and Zaragoza thrashed him. So, yeah, he was just. I remember it was just like left hand, left hand, left hand, left hand, just like absolutely yeah. banking, you know. From Zarate like- probably didn't even deserve that time fight either if you really think about it it was more or less he had probably got that more on name and recognition and everybody mm-hmm. kind of loved him more than anything yeah for sure yeah and you know uh a guy like zaragoza who was not remotely a puncher whatsoever you know stepping in there and beating him up not not a good look and probably more representative of how washed you know zarate was than anything obviously and his counterpart and- zamora like we said man he flamed out quick because soon after the Zarate fight, he ends up fighting um, Jorge Lujan, a Panamanian fighter. Very slick guy, very tough guy. He doesn't get mentioned a lot today. He doesn't really get talked about a lot today. But um, in the late 70s and early 80s, he was a tricky guy and a very tough guy to fight. And probably the wrong style for someone like Zamora, who was kind of going through the motions now after getting knocked out seriously for the first time, uh, to go against. And when he got stopped in that fight, it's a very, there's a very like dramatic photo. Um, if you see it, Zamora, after he gets stopped, like Luan drops him. And when he goes down, you see Zamora just sit down on his lap 
and he has his arms on his shoulder and he has his arms on his lap and he's looking at the referee his mouthpiece now and he has the most dejected look on his face like he doesn't care he's just going like just count me out you know what i mean like you've seen eric morales or kind of like um alexis arguello in the second prior fight just one of those i know i'm done i don't really care but his is even more so like more so just like i don't want to do this anymore i just don't care i'm just out and just lets himself get counted out um he ends up having a dramatic win soon after though against um another contender from the era by the name of alberto superfly um sandoval who a guy that never won a world title but a tough guy in a dramatic fight people said that was the comeback of the year people were excited about zamorin you know his impending return and what he can do maybe in the 80s but it wasn't meant to be i know he lost soon after that and then he retired so yeah, dude, that's a lot of that's a lot of punching history too from around that time, just stemming from those two fighters, Zarate and Zamora. Like you know, there's there was a number of wars and heavy punching dudes that they fought too. Dude, tons of them, man, from back then, but none really equal their type of power and what they were able to do. Like that was magical numbers that they were putting up, and not only were those magical numbers they were putting up, like the or like the aura that each guy held. And when that fight was able to be made, like imagine today if that fight was held and the way boxing Twitter feels about lower weight fighters and they were going to come together, dude, like the whole place would have exploded. You know? Do you remember how, how excited people got because two punchers in Golovkin and Lemieux were going to get together? They're like, we sold 25,000 at Madison Square. You know, yeah, it was yeah, like, totally. you know, and don't get me wrong. Like it, there was, you know, there was some le legit reasons to be excited for that fight, but I'm but just saying. A fight like Zarate Zamora would blow away the, any type of, and this is not to knock, you know, uh, the little four kings or whatever, like, you know, that, because I, I love Chocolatito and Strider and the rest of those guys, but they couldn't compare to the excitement that that fight would have brought, that that fight brought. You know what I mean? Like, that was just the world stopped for the little guys that night. You know, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Always good to see. Always yeah. good to see. So going back up with with one big guy, because I mean, there are a couple that we probably just need to talk about, even if it's somewhat briefly, because everybody knows their story for the most part by now. But Joe Lewis, you know, e easily one of the greatest punchers, uh, both in terms of the greatest puncher of all time. Yeah, if not the greatest, you know, uh, and I'll fine. I ain't gonna argue with you. And I'd be yeah. totally fine with that. I'd probably call him the greatest to myself, um, either in terms of heavy handedness or in terms of you know knocking motherfuckers out technique etc cetera, etc cetera. yes 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 uh ex extraordinary combination puncher especially for a heavyweight um obviously not a big heavyweight but in those days six three six two pretty good size in terms of height you know 210 215 not a small guy you know and obviously on top of that he was big enough to be able to handle a number of fighters who were pretty big you know Clearly not super skilled, but still pretty big. He was able to handle them in terms of their size. That should answer the question. People are like, oh, Tyson Fury would be too big for Joe Lewis, bro. Did you see the size of Primo Carnero? Did you see the size I of mean, Buddy Bear? See the size dude, of Abe Simon? Well, and and the problem with a Joe Lewis dude is that like he's the kind of fighter where you can look at these other guys. You know, you could look at a Tyson Fury and say. Anybody, it doesn't have to be Steve Cunningham. You know, you could say Steve Cunningham knocked him, knocked him down. I think it was like an overhand right or something like yeah, that. It was he knocked him down right in front of me? And or you could say uh, so and so hit him, or Deontay Wilder hurt him real bad, etc. You know, and it's like it doesn't really matter who it is. The point is, if somebody's touching him up, if you allow Joe Lewis that opportunity, 
you're probably going to be knocked out. And if you're not knocked out, then you're going to be hurting real bad. Uh, you couldn't, you know, more than likely you're going to be knocked out. <laughs> there weren't a whole lot of fighters who were either able to take him the distance or were able to like somehow tr- like really trouble him. I mean, it's not, he was, he was, you could outbox him. You could hurt him. He got hurt a whole in a whole bunch of fights actually, mm-hmm. but it, but it was still just like, you know, you had to take him out. If you didn't take him out and there was an opening, it's trouble, dude. Bad, bad, bad trouble. No, you weren't going to take him out. As like you said, Lewis didn't have the greatest chin. He could be hurt, but he had really good recuperative powers. And, you know, like if he if he suffered a flash knockdown or if he got rocked a little bit, generally he, he caught his wits about him within moments. You know, the, like you said, you had to beat him up. And the only one that was able to do that was Max Schmeling. And Schmeling had to take a ton of punishment himself. You know, people forget that it wasn't just Schmeling walking in there and bludgeoning him. Yeah, you caught him with right hand after right hand. But yeah, yeah, that was a later stoppage. That wasn't like in two or three rounds or something. It was a later stoppage and Schmeling had to take a ton of jabs to the face and, you know, to damn that too. The type of punishment most fighters wouldn't be able to handle against Joe Lewis. So, yeah, dude, Lewis was just, the thing that was so great about him is that, you know, we talked about his trainer. Jack Blackburn. Jack Blackburn won the great turn of the century lightweights who ended up, you know, welterweights, middleweights, fought everybody. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Blackburn just taught Lewis, like, he's one of those guys, he was a great trainer, you know, and he really taught Lewis the basics. Like, he really broke it down about technique, something that's sorely lacking in a lot of trainers today and everything. Certain guys, do, you know, teach it, but a lot of them don't really teach it the way it personally. If Blackburn was around today, his head would probably explode because he was already a very temperamental person to begin with. So um, if he saw the way gyms were run and how people were going, I, I can't imagine how he would react. It probably I mean, can you imagine him reacting to the bubbles? Oh, no, no. Very violently. <laughs> in fact, I'm sure if he had a weapon around, he'd probably try to use it on everyone in sight. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he, he was, you know, angry, bitter, alcoholic, um, went to jail for manslaughter among other things, but he knew boxing and he knew boxing better than anybody really when it came down to us. So yeah, he was a perfect fit for Lewis, even with all his faults. And um, he just, you know, like I said, the, the techniques about it, man, he taught Lewis perfect balance. Balance is such a key in the sport. And he taught him not only the balance, like the torque of how to move your body with every punch, every punch means something, how to throw it, how to always stay on balance for the next punch. Everything was always on point. And yeah, that made Lewis a little bit slow and made sure that Lewis always had to have his feet set before he really threw. But when he did, like you said, bro, everything was just pinpoint and perfect. There wasn't one, like, if you looked in a dictionary of how to, you know, look up perfect technique in a fighter, that was really Joe Lewis. Everything was just well. The way he moved forward, the way he shuffled, the way he did that, the way he cut off the ring, the way he set things up with the jab, the way he, like, just cuts you down, you know, the, the pressure that he would put on you the way the angles that he would move, everything had a purpose for itself. And he would just break you down and just brutalize you. And before you knew it, like you said, if you went a number of rounds, you just got the living hell beat out of you. Bones busted, face all beat up. And then you finally got knocked out. Look at James Braddock. Braddock, you know. Yeah, yeah. that that knockout dude is like, he doesn't even get knocked out. He just goes, mama. He He just goes to the canvas like, no, no more, please. And Braddock at that stage in his career, everyone, you know, Cinderella man, yada, yada, yada. But he was really doing, you know, after he won the title, man, he was on cloud nine. He was fighting, doing his best work. And if you watch that fight too, especially in the early rounds, Braddock would have gave a lot of guy the business that night because he dropped Lewis early on and was doing really well at for early. But once Lewis started, you know, piecing him in and started dialing in, it became a really bad one-sided bludgeoning. 
Braddock as tough as they come, so he was able to handle it. But once he got knocked out, like you said, man, he fell in sections. And just curled up and lay there. And if you look at the photos of him afterwards, man, it looked like he got hit with a bat. You know, his face is just kind of bloody and beaten. Just, dude, you know, it's bad. That's the type of stuff Joe Lewis was able to do to you. And... Yeah, man, there's no better. It's just the overall everything, like, was Joe Lewis the greatest puncher in terms of, like, I'm sure there's guys that hit even harder than he is, but that's not the case. We're just talking the overall body of work, the way he set everything up, everything like, you know, the way he set up punches, the way he took care of business, how he did it. There's no one better than Lewis. Like, he's the quintessential puncher for me. I can't remember what fight it is. I remember I I thought that I had figured it out a while back, but I just don't remember which one it was or which one I thought I had pinpointed. But there's been that urban legend for decades now that um, in one of the fights where Joe Lewis scores a first-round knockout, right before the fight, Chappie, you know, Blackburn, Blackburn saying that he doesn't feel real good. He's been sick for a bit, and he doesn't want to keep climbing the stairs. And yeah. Joe Lewis said, well, then you're going to be only climbing the stairs once tonight. So he goes up and knocks the dude out in one round, only climbed the stairs once. So, I mean, you know, I, I thought that I had pinpointed what fight it that's supposed to be. I just don't remember what it was. Point is, you know, there's so many great stories about Joe Lewis, so many great memories, so many great fights, so many great knockouts. Uh, I mean, look how, you know, that, that saying that he came up with, um, and I guess it, was, it came up by mistake, but he said, we're going to win because we're on God's side. Yeah, because he was... He was misquoted, but yeah, yeah. 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 But it ended up being, it ended up working, you know, for well in itself. And yeah. He said, we're on God's side. And they misquoted him and said that God's on our side. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's it. God's on our side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, the way America finally took to him when he, because I mean, they didn't hate him. Because like you said, he was on a very strict, like, you know, after the Jack Johnson era, can't the seven commandments. Yeah. Yeah, don't all this stuff. And so America was, was like he was cool. given seven commandments the never have a picture taken with a white woman, never go into a nightclub alone, uh, no soft fights, no fixed fights, never gloat over a fallen opponent, and to keep a deadpan look in front of camera. So like don't celebrate and don't smile. Yeah, so you don't see a lot of smiling Lewis photos. I mean, they're around there. You see there's obviously a ton like a few from back then, but when and he actually got the- caught slipping a couple times in a couple of fights. Like, for instance, the the Jolento fight. Yeah. Uh, like, he, you could see at the end, like, he's like, like, he wanted one more. He was like, mm, I'm sure after the Schmeling fight, he was celebrating too, obviously. You could, you could see in a couple of fights that he was like, you know, you know. But like, Damn. Lewis was that type of guy too, man. When he knocked you out, he always left like a dramatic knockout. You know, it wasn't just like, it wasn't just like a guy just kind of fell like, you know, easily or whatever. There was always some kind of dramatic effect to it. Johnny Paycheck, his feet actually oh. left off the ground when he got skidded across the ring in two just rounds an, by Joe Lewis. Like, just yeah. absolutely fucking pancakes. Yeah, he like came right up, man. You know, it makes you wonder how Benny Leonard thought he would actually. Perfect one, two, dude. Fucking. Did you know that? What's that? that? Benny, picked, Benny Leonard picked Johnny Paycheck to beat Lewis that night. <laughs> Well, it makes you wonder if that Lou Tendler left hand really did some damage to him or not, or something. Yeah, that was a bad that was a bad rivalry, I guess. Jesus. Yeah, was a 
I mean, look, man, no disrespect to Johnny Paycheck, who wasn't a bad fighter in his time, but there's no he way was, He was a popular fighter, like, locally, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, come on. You saw what happened to him. And if you watch it, too, man, Paycheck with a hand up, and he's just trying to, like, jab away. Like, get away from me. Get away from me. Oh, he, yeah, he looks like somebody's, guy. like, you know, aging mechanic uncle or something, you know? He does like, with the whole bald head and everything going on. Yeah, man. Come you know. on. Or if it's the late 80s, he looked like someone that would be oh, like getting squashed by the ultimate thinking? warrior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like somebody on some like, you know, Arkansas wrestling circuit or some shit, bro. Totally, yeah. 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 Oh. His feet get literally lifted off the canvas. Um, Lee That's Ramage, a brutal, brutal knockout. Brutal knockout. Lee Ramage, who was a California heavyweight champion. Oh. Very tough guy. Cagey fighter. Didn't get knocked out often. Um well, there's a video the video of him when he fights lewis and then lewis it's i mean it's a little bit faster so it looks kind of weird but like lewis jabs him to the ropes jabs to the ropes ramages over there tries to slip it a little bit and then lewis hits him with a left hook yep. and then you see him folds in sections too just slides down the rope like you know, melted <laughs> yeah he like hits the ropes and is like <laughs> you know like exactly it just <laughs> like he got stung by a fucking jellyfish or something exactly bro like <laughs> Lewis produced some wild knockouts that way, man. There's another one where he hits the guy with a hook and the guy just falls to the ropes oh, and then Lewis God. hits him again and then he collapses. Um, uh, what's your uh, buddy bear, the rematch when he just kind of folded. Yeah. He, got hit. <laughs> he like can't keep himself from like, yeah, he can't keep himself from just getting flattened. Or one of my favorites is the Jersey Joe Walcott rematch because Lewis is clearly past his prime at that point. Walcott's actually older than Lewis, but Walcott's more preserved, you know, whatever it is. And he just has a style that would give everybody help. Like, I couldn't imagine fighting a guy like Walcott back then. That must have sucked. But oh, Yeah, he was a real pain in the ass. <laughs> seriously, dude. The way, you know, his herky-jerky movements, the way he walk away from you, all this other stuff. Yeah, totally that little stupid <laughs> shit. And then he comes out at you with the quickest little right hand or that sneaky left hook. You don't know where it's coming from, so it hurts even more, like, you know, Lewis would have had trouble with him in his prime, let alone the bald, you know, bald spot Lewis back of the head going just kind of washed. But yeah. anyways, again, Walcott doing his whole little thing like that hurts Lewis. But then when Lewis finally catches him after just going through, I don't even know what it was, like 20-something rounds of pure hell with the guy, um, he finally catches up to him and catches him. And then you like, you know, Walcott does try to swing back a couple of times with the sneaky hook, but Lewis just like that's it like enough is enough you know <laughs> that's a, no no more of this yeah i want to go like, home with this shit yeah it's just like finally i got your ass and just boom 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 <laughs> you see walcott like still trying to ride it out trying to swing it and then finally he's just, and his head just goes and he's just unconscious and lewis is like I'm done with you and he just collapses <laughs> poor guy dude walcott just you know Another guy who just came along at the wrong damn time, which I guess, I don't know if you could even say that because he was around for like 30 years. So, <laughs> fucking guy. Oh, and when he got God. inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1990, and I believe he was the oldest one to be inducted, him and uh, Billy Kahn. Um, even was quoted as saying, I still wish I can get in there and throw down today. I believe it, dude. I believe yeah. it. He's definitely born to fight, no question. And he still looked the same too, man. He never he always kind of looked the same. He always looked really old. You know, I mean, I know sign of the times or whatever, but like if you see how he looked in 1990, if you see how he looked back when he fought Joe Lewis, and and it's like he still he had the same exact face, except he just had a couple more wrinkles and he was like, but the same just just everything. Like he even still looked like he was still in decent shape, you know. 
if you see him in the lit one, he looked completely flabbergasted in the in the Liston in the Liston Ali rematch, which clearly, you know, it's one of the all-time worst bumblefucks performances ever. But you still see him in shape, man. You see the the massive arms he had in that fight. Like Yeah, like he yeah, he was still fine to be pushing him apart and shit. He was all right. Yeah, 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 man. Like well, he just couldn't through. referee. <laughs> no, he just had, you know, just had no idea he got frazzled really easy. He just got frazzled. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You're up in Lewiston, Maine. For a fucking heavyweight type, what are you gonna do? You nah, know, no. Ali's running around in circles. He's probably getting confused about that. You got Nat Flasher screaming at you from a corner, like, yeah, man, poor Walcott. But um, Joe Lewis, dude, he just clearly, I, I mean, he was just incredible. And what he meant to people, or what he meant to the communities, um, I mean, they beat the shit out of Jack Johnson. All right, like that's how much they loved Joe. Yeah, Lewis. they were they were ready to. That's what I. Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, about mm-hmm. 30 years after he's the first black heavyweight champion, almost lost his life in Harlem because he was talking shit on Joe Lewis. Because he bet on Max Schmeling to beat Lewis. And he was correct. He said that Lewis wasn't a complete project yet. He was, and he was right in that regard. He said... Sorry. Well, a lot of people were underestimating Schmeling, too, who was a good oh. fighter. Schmeling was a great fighter great fighter from that late from that time period where the turnover from jack dempsey retiring to you know and then they had like a little bit of a holdover and confusion schmeller was the best of that lot better than sharky better than um uskadun better than you know the rest of the contenders at that point He, he actually he definitely was um anyways by the time he fought lewis he was just like you know he 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 said i see something and johnson saw the same thing and that's what we talked about it before as devastating as Lewis's jab was, he didn't bring it back fully. He just dropped it ever so slightly so he could be timed with an overhand right. But you had to be really good at timing that right hand. You had to be able to be like, you know something, you're going to have to take a few jabs. Yep. To be able to get and if that jab guy, he was going to hurt. <laughs> and it's going to suck. It's, you know, you're going to have to take some punishment, but you have to gripe it. But if you can really figure that out, you know, there, there it is for you. Yep. And that Schmeling was able to take advantage of it. Lewis could stop. Jack Johnson bet on him, and then Jack Johnson, because, well, he had balls and he's also an idiot, decided to go to Harlem and brag about it. And he almost got killed for that. And I think he lost his money, too, because I'm pretty sure they robbed him. Yeah, I but think they anyway, robbed him, yeah. It was yeah, in, like... Rightfully like, so. <sighs> I mean, if you're stupid to go to Harlem and brag about what happened, go to 125th Street and brag about that, then you have every right to get robbed for that. So, And, and what's even the most amazing thing about it was Lewis wasn't even champion yet. No. No, he was, you know, stemmed, and this all stemmed because Jack Johnson didn't like Jack Blackburn, and he was yep. mad that Jack Blackburn was getting attention, and he wanted to train Joe Lewis. That was all it was. He actually liked Joe Lewis from the beginning. He did, you know. He used to praise him and say all this stuff, but then he started needling in, saying, "Yeah, yeah, Lewis is really good and everything, but he needs to do this and that." You know what I mean? Yeah, I but know he needs to I... listen to me. You know? Yeah, he sure. needs to listen to me. And finally, he was like, "If I trained him, I could take him to the next level." Blah, 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 blah. Anyways, yeah, man, this. Lewis was just that dude. He, he, was, he was incredible. He was just one of the all-time greats, and I consider him the greatest puncher ever. But <clears throat> speaking of that gravy train of heavyweights, I guess you have to mention the guy on my shirt now. The Acorn. Yes. A.K.A. the James Black Destroyer. Who some people consider the greatest heavyweight puncher in history. Um, you know, with good reason, man. He's another one. Thank God for YouTube. Look at the highlight reels that we have of Shavers now, right? Even the fights that, I mean, look, Shavers has been embedded on VHS tapes for decades with people seeing his knockouts. 
tape collectors. He's been on highlight videos, all this other stuff. But it's the amount of fights now that we've never really seen that are get, that are now being posted to YouTube. Like, um, for example, his fights with um, Howard Smith, um, which I had never seen. I had just read about up until a few years ago. Um, his rematch with Henry Clark, which he bludgeoned him at uh, Yankee Stadium, another fight that I just kind of read about, never seen. Um, you know, and a few other ones, like his fight with Ron Lyle, even though he lost that one, he knocks the shit out of Lyle completely off his heels. And Lyle was in, was in you know, when they talk about that on um, Facing Ali, that great documentary, um, Lyle was like, Ernie Shavers, man, he said, when he hit me, he said, my feet lifted off the ground when I landed. And then he laughs and he goes, hey, no man ever hit me like that. <laughs> and, and every, every, yeah, every fighter can will say the same thing, man. Or that no one ever hit me like Ernie Shavers you know. hit me. And that's, and you know, there's a couple, there's a couple of different paradoxes here going on at the same time. The first one is something that I know we've talked about and then I know we've noted, and that's that fighters in general, when you ask them who hit you hardest, they are going to tend to tell you that it was someone they defeated. Yeah. Why? Maybe ego. I don't know. You know, because almost no fighter is like the dude who totally left me unconscious and I had to go to the hospital for six weeks was the guy who hit me hardest. No, it was the dude that they wound up fucking knocking out in four rounds. You know, that's the guy that hit him hardest, of course, you know, but whatever. So that's like, you know, the the first kind of paradox here. And the second one is that like, you know, yeah, obviously, like we talked about before, there's a lot of cans, dude, a lot of dudes on his record that were not very good. And on top of that, the crazy thing was that the way that he punched, it was almost like people knew. And so like fools were like, Whoa! you know, like, so it was like he had to, it was almost as if he had to work an extra step harder to land those punches because motherfuckers went in there knowing how he punched. Well, not only that, man, Shavers was a stocky guy. He was built like he was really scary fit. looking. Very he was scary, scary. looking. Even He's when he, still even, scary looking. Even before, even before he went bald with the Fu Manchu and just you know looking like a like a warrior. When He's he, when still he had scary looking. Hairline, he was scary. Yeah, man, it didn't matter. Shavers was always he'd fuck me up like today. Totally. And then when you hear his interview and facing Ali saying that he want that his goal in life before becoming a boxer was to be a hitman, is even crazier. Like he legitimately says, "I wanted to be a hitman." <laughs> oh, I that's a great. Yeah, that's my favorite. That's one of my favorite Ali things you know because there's so many like extra ollie things that yeah, you just yeah, don't yeah. need that one was really good it's a great documentary and it's free on youtube you gotta watch it if you don't have you ever seen it but you hear me he was like yeah i wanted to be a hitman he said i grew up with hitman in the neighborhood and they always you know had fancy cars and nice women and a lot of money and i thought that'd be the life i wanted to do that who says shit like that first off anyways so that's I mean, he almost thing. did <laughs> in a way. Yes, you know, it's the next best thing was just knocking guys into the next level realm. So as he becomes a heavyweight, and he's one of Don King's early fighters, by the way. Like the thing about Shavers is that like he's built really, really stock. He's built like a tree trunk, and he's really slow. And he swung every punch for the fences. Like it wasn't trying to really set up his stuff. Like you know, everything had intentions to knocking you out. His stamina wasn't great, so. Not only was his stamina great, he didn't have the best chin either. So yeah. if you were able to somehow survive his bombs for a few rounds, no easy task because most guys couldn't do it. You had a chance to be able to beat him because he would slow down eventually, and then you then you had a chance to like you know do some damage on him. Ron Stander of all people was able to stop him. 
I mean, that was an early career loss for Shavers, but nonetheless, that still stands out. But the thing is that that's what made Shavers, you know, a crowd favorite. His punch is just, you always knew he was one punch away from the promise. Yeah. And like, you could hear them in the crowd too. Cause he'd be like, yeah. and the crowd would be like, whoa. Oh, cause they knew, they knew. It's and like, by oh, the late seventies, after Shavers had already fought Ali and everything like that, it looked at this point that, you know, Shavers was finally going to sail off to the sunset. The first time he fought Larry Holmes, Holmes whooped him easy, man. Like, you know, I barely got touched in 10 rounds because Holmes was on the way up. Definitely ple- uh, played keep away with him, keeping his jab in his face, right hand, dropped Shavers and won an easy decision. Shavers says that he had a, was going through a lot of managerial things and other stuff for that, but he wasn't prepared. He wasn't ready. But after a couple of more wins, because here's the thing, Shavers have a big fight whether he wins or loses then he you know like you said he'd pick up a few undercard wins beating up this guy that guy a fringe contender no hope or whatever it is but he'd always be knocking around somebody always staying active but then when he would finally in the late 70s after ken norton loses to larry um to larry holmes he ends up fighting ernie shavers and this was an eliminator now for um for you know for uh for a shot at larry holmes both guys that fought Holmes, Norton gave Holmes one of the greatest fights in history. Shavers lost a wide, easy shutout decision. Yeah, Both shout out to our boy, the Colonel. Oh, yeah, yeah, Colonel Bob <laughs> Sheridan, absolutely. Who almost gave that 15-round word by word. Yeah, <laughs> almost did it feeling for feeling. <laughs> when Polly brought up the last round, oh, here we go. That's right, man. I'm going to tell you right now. Holmes comes out, two jabs right here. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, is this man about the game? Yeah, I, I, I had to mute it because I was like, no, no, this isn't happening. He's, he's this isn't happening. Talking about that until he finally got cut down. Hold on, <laughs> Colonel, we're not in 1978 anymore. Bring it back. But um, <laughs> so they fight, and we witnessed a massacre, bro. When Norton fought Shavers that night, oh, that bro. that was that there was, was a few times where like, Norton you know, just there was a couple nights. The yellow tape for a crime scene because Norton was straight up mucked. Like there were was, a couple nights where Norton just had a real bad night, and that was one of them. I mean, Norton always had trouble against punchers. You know, George Foreman fight, other fight, uh, Jose Luis Garcia early in his career. He was wobbled by a few other punchers. Like, Norton had the type of style, tough style, you know, crab defense, but it was more dangerous for boxers as opposed to punchers, especially if he couldn't hold them off. <laughs> like Shavers, you know what I mean? Shavers kind of walked right through him. The first punch Shavers really landed, you could see Norton was already bothered by it. And then Shavers landed a body shot at one point. You see Norton visibly is bothered, bothered by it. And at that point, that's when Shavers just took over and started clubbing him around because he knew it was over. And then that's when he's like, boosh, with the uppercut. And, and then you see Norton just fall and he's like, you know, like he has no idea what the hell just happened to him. Poor Norton, dude. And every time he got dinged around, he had this look on his face like, where am I? Am I human? That, what like is the, this? He experienced what all the... Well, God knows how many other heavyweights at that point throughout the 70s, you know, went through when they fought Ernie Shavers. Norton had just got, you know, had the chance to wait until about 1979 for it. So by the time he finally catches it around, he was like, oh, my God, this is what everyone else was talking about. Jesus Christ. Like, that's what he was dealing with. That's Enough. What no more. <laughs> he was like, my Lord, is this what they were like? This is what Ali was saying? Like, you know, Jesus. And Why somebody tell me about this shit. And then you see at the end of the fight, like, you hear Howard Cosell and he was like, Bernie Shavers is career resurrected for Kenny Norton. Heaven knows. Because, like, Norton's just splayed out. He's gone, you know. But that's what brings Shavers into one of the most dramatic rematches in boxing history. Oh, man. When he fights Larry Holmes, you know, for the heavyweight championship. And a fight. Look, 
Holmes at this point, we've discussed it, man. He was really begging for attention. He was pissed off at the world. He was still in Ali's shadow. He had, after beating Norton, he had, you know, beat Ozzy Ocasio and beaten, um, whatchamacallit there, um, event, you know, Evangelista and stuff like that. But he was, like, really looking for a big name, you know, Mike Weaver as well. So he was, like, looking, he was looking for a big fight, big win. Like, those three names that we just mentioned, they weren't going to do it from the Weaver fight was great. But that actually raised more suspicions about Holmes than anything because Weaver was nondescript at that point and shouldn't have been able to do that to him. So by the time he fights Holmes in the rematch, I mean, you know, there's still intrigue because Shavers ravaged um, Ken Norton. But at the same time, Holmes whipped him so easy the last time he should be able to do it again. And for the first, you know, for the most part, yeah, it's a little bit more competitive, but Holmes is, you know, doing what he was supposed to be doing in that fight. But ever so slowly, each round, Shavers is getting a little bit more close, a little bit more close, a little bit more close. He's not quite landing his shots. He lands a couple of shots here and there, but he's not landing that home run punch that he's trying to really, you know, do something. Finally, what was it, round seven, I believe, right? Um, yes, yeah, yes. Round seven. Mm-hmm. You see it, you know, Holmes is finally, like, jabbing, Dude, just jabbing, jabbing. Just everything. He's hitting them, and, like, you hear Shavers breathing because, like, the crowd's kind of quiet, you know what I mean? And, like, Holmes is in control, so not much is going on. But then Shavers is getting closer, and the crowd is getting anticipation because he is swinging. Finally, as Holmes is going for an uppercut, Shavers throws the most perfect right hand you will ever see anyone throw. And it's the most perfect right hand he ever threw. It's probably the hardest, in my opinion, the single hardest punch ever thrown in boxing. And it landed right on Larry Holmes's chin. And what happens? Holmes dropped like he was absolutely shot with a 22 gauge. He was dead. I'm convinced he was dead and the canvas woke him up. Like the canvas somehow revived him or something. Cause he was like. It sounds bro. It sounded like a grenade dropping on someone. The way that shot lands, you just hear like. It sounded like a garbage truck being yeah. dropped off the edge of the empire. You just heard. Dude, like no, the most my god the way shavers throws it with slot you see every yeah he just does everything. that just that overhand everything just, was right behind know. it he just comes boom and holmes's head just a swivel just and like you said bro everything his body completely lifeless his whole body just went completely it's like taking your soul it's like when your soul you know as richard Pryor said about air he's like when your soul <laughs> just says fuck it he out and just left his body. He was like, I ain't taking this shit <laughs> and leaves it and just left Holmes lifeless. Then, like you said, boom. And Larry Holmes always said, if Shavers didn't hit him as hard as he did, he probably would have Shavers would have won. Because he said Holmes said he hit him so hard that it woke him up. If he just hit him ever so slightly, he probably still would have been unconscious. But like he hit him so hard, the jolt of him hitting the canvas as hard as he did kind of jolted him back awake. And that's like wild to me, you know, you know, and it's, it almost sounds like we're like much ado about nothing about this one punch, but dude, you got to watch it because it's, it's it's one of the, it's one of the hardest I've ever seen a human get hit, but then like, you know, clearly be affected. Like they fell. Cause I've seen like, I've seen a couple times in like, like an MMA, like Mirko Krokop lands a high yeah. left kick or like Mark Hunt lands something, you know, somebody, and it's like they absorb it and they're just like, you know, like, but they're okay or whatever. I'm talking about like somebody lands something and that person clearly is like hurt badly by it, but then they get up and not only do they get up, they go on to win and they go on to like make it a stoppage. Like, 
And if you watch it today, if you watch that video, there's no way that would be allowed to happen. There's no way that. No, no, no of course not. Yeah. Cause oh. even just, even just him hitting, they would have been like, Whoa, you know, in a second, like, in a second. And the best, I think the most modern thing to compare it to is the way Fury got dropped in the first Wilder fight. But even then, it's not even close to how hard Shaver's That was hit. That was pretty damn close. Yeah, that was pretty damn close. I mean, the way, and it's not even, I mean, Wilder hit him with a beautiful shot. I and mean, I'm, I'm sure. And, but also, but also to be fair, he hit him with two also. Yes, hit him with so, a cleanup left hook. Shaver's just hit him with that one. And, but, but like, and I think it was more the way, like, I'm talking more the way Fury went down as a yeah, 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 yeah. Because, like, he went like yeah. bank and then like, you know, another if you like, get him, man, Holmes was on the next level. We've learned, we learned over the years after that, that Holmes had some of the greatest recuperative powers in boxing history. Like he was, cause not only did he survive that, he ends up uh, surviving Tim Witherspoon. Um, he survived a massive scare against Ronaldo Snipes where he literally gets up and walks head first into the fucking ring post. Or again, where most referees would have stopped the fight immediately after he did that. Um, cause he's a bink. Walks yep. in there and still looks disorganized and has no idea what's going on and other instances. But like Holmes was always able, Jerry Cooney heard him a couple of times and he was able to come back from that. So Holmes, you know, showed his mettle. But when he gets up from that, he clearly has no idea what's going on. He's still knocked out. He, you know, there's a thousand, like at this point, there's like, I would, you know, goddamn, there's a Buddy Rich, Tony Williams, and Max Rhodes drum solo going on his head at the same time, both of them competing. All right, just this three way dance. Like that's what's going on in his brain at that moment. All of them just playing playing on his brain, and his eyes are fluttering. He doesn't know what's going on, but all he knows, as he said, is that like he got knocked down and somehow he's up, and he's trying to clear the air and all, and he's just fighting on instinct. And how does he fight on instinct? He just starts jabbing and running away. Shavers, at this point, who I'm sure is like flabbergasted that Holmes got up from that, figures, okay, well he's still hurt. I can finish him off. And Shavers starts chucking some absolute windmills at him just whoosh whoosh and you see Holmes somehow barely duck them at the last second still because he's still knocked out he's clearing his head he's just and then he bounces off the ropes uses the momentum bouncing off the ropes to try to get the other way we're like go over there you know like doing things like that and and it's just such dramatic stuff to watch and somehow he survives it because Shavers is gassed at this point Shavers, who everything he had in that one punch took him out, but then Shavers wasn't the best finisher either because usually he would just knock guys out and you didn't have to do stuff like that. But, like, you know, um, it's so brutal, it, it's, it's so dramatic. And then Holmes, like you said, he cleared the area finally, he was able to stop him later on, which is wild. But even then, Shavers still was a hot commodity in the division. Did he ever reach that height again? No, but that power, even though he was way past and he had no business really fighting into the early 80s, that power still remained. Like Joe Bugner, who was always known as a very, very durable heavyweight at this time. Very few guys were able to knock him out. You know, he went the distance with Ron Lyle, Joe Frazier twice, who's who of guys in that division. Shavers knocked the shit out of him in two rounds when they fought, you know, on, on the undercard of Salvador Sanchez, actually, of all people. So, and if you watch that fight too, Shavers sets it up, gets over there, big right hand, and Bugner, same thing, completely shell-shocked. He feels the same way every other heavyweight from the 70s that got in the ring where Shavers felt what just happened to me, you know? <laughs> and, um, Poor people. And then James Quick Tillis was the last one I'll bring up. Um, and this point, Shavers is super washed. We're talking, this is the undercard of Larry Holmes, Jerry Cooney. Shavers should have had no business fighting at this point in, by 1982, right? So, but here he is. 
And Tillis is still known as, even though he lost to Mike Weaver, is still known as a top contender. You know, he's not quite a trail horse yet or a or, um, gatekeeper or whatever, as he would become. And Tillis is out boxing the whole way. Shavers is even slower than usual. They're out in the Vegas sun. Um, Howard Cosell is complaining about Shavers being slow. He's complaining about Joey Curtis having a belly and being out of shape for a referee and all kinds of other things because that's what Cosell does. But at one point, same thing, man. Uh, Tillis gets a little lazy, drops his hands. Shavers throws a right hand that you could time with a sundial, but somehow still lands it. And Tillis just falls in heaps, completely unglued. His arms drops to his side. He drops face first, completely unconscious. Cosell starts going crazy. And there it is. There it is. Shavers got him. My God, he got him. You know? And... <laughs> And he didn't move. You know, Tillis was completely out there. Finally, he jolts awake and he wakes up and he's like shaking his head. And then same scenario with the Holmes fight. You see Shavers. <laughs> and the other dude just playing keep away. Like, oh my God, what the hell just happened to me? I never want that to happen again in my life. Stay away, you know? So. Man, yeah, he just, he definitely had that kind of puncher's paradox or punch puncher's issue, whatever you want to call it, where massive power but not the stamina to carry it super long into a fight and not great at absorbing punishment himself which is so you know it would have been fascinating like shavers it would have been really interesting to see shavers in the 90s not the comeback that he actually had in the 90s him and oh, ron lyle Jesus. making dual yeah. comebacks in 1995 but um i'm talking about if we're talking like shavers 73 four five you know 1970 shavers in the 90s as a heavyweight Oh man, that would have been awesome. Yeah, he definitely dude. would have knocked the hell out of guys like Franz Botha and Michael Moore. And I like Michael Moore, but there's no way Moore would have survived a one punch from Shavers. There would have been a number of like either smaller heavyweights or heavyweights who were just kind of on the cusp but never fought a big puncher or whatever who would have been yeah. like, all right, dude, I got something for you. I got something for you, little guy. <laughs> Nerdy Shavers. Like, imagine Shavers, Tommy Morrison. Oh, or, dude. Uh, been michael bent all over again dude yeah probably um fuck man lennox lewis and i'm talking like early lewis like lewis would be out boxing him and shavers you know dangerous the whole time like fights like that this shit gets me excited holyfield against shavers oh jesus know. oh yeah i'm not sure shavers would get through that one no 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 definitely holyfield would have stopped him but you yeah, can't i mean and i mean like get through is and like get through very many rounds in like that might be bad but <laughs> They grind his ass down. But yeah, no, Shavers without question. First of all, it's a fucking dope shirt. But Sh- Shavers absolutely. Yeah, with, dude, that's awesome. Without question, though, dude. Heavy, heavy puncher. And I know, like, I saw Michael Ez- Ezra earlier. Like, he was talking about Shavers and, like, saying, ah, I think he's overrated. I don't have a problem with anybody saying that. I think that he probably could get overrated. But kind of like how we were talking about earlier, uh, at least with facing Ali, I'll just say this. Um, there are subjects where people are like, you know, when we talk boxing and shit like that, sometimes when fighters are just like, are you a fighter? Have you ever been a fighter? Then shut the fuck up type of shit. And it's like, dude, that's not, that's not how it works. Come on, dude. I don't need to have been a fighter to know that, you know, you were supposed to make weight, bro. You know what I'm saying? You missed weight. That doesn't mean that I can't say anything because I wasn't a fighter. You missed weight, bro. You know, that type of shit. But like, you know, uh, there's still there's still those instances where you you do have to fucking believe that experience and the facing Ali shit uh, and also the other fighters who have said you know Ernie Shavers like 
whether you want to believe him that he was the the heaviest puncher, whatever, you don't have to. But every single one of them said, yeah, that guy could fucking punch. Yeah, that guy could fucking murder, bro. And so you could say, yeah, he's overrated. That's cool. But let's not stray into the realm of, yeah, he wasn't really a puncher. Because he was. Because he definitely <laughs> fucking was, you know? Like, let's yeah, not you argue mean, that. You see the size of his absolute paws, bro. And you realize how much of a puncher. He's a big dude. Yeah. He's not super tall. He's just huge. He's just a thick, and, massive, and even scary individual. Often the big punchers are the lanky dudes. But he was not a lanky dude. He was one of those few punchers that was, you know, fairly muscular and big. Like, fuck you up bro well let's move on go ahead i I was gonna say i was gonna move on to somebody who's not that big who's more on the lanky side much much smaller than a shavers for sure but nonetheless legendary in the punching department no question that's jimmy wild dude had like 10 different nicknames because the ghost with the hammer in his hand the mighty adam i have absolutely no idea why anybody would call him the indian famine that just makes me uncomfortable. I don't I've never actually heard that nickname. That's what? That was, anyway. Yeah. The, uh, the terror The guy had, I don't, I'd never even read that nickname, but they have it on box rec. So I don't know, but I don't know how he would have gotten it. Doesn't make sense. I, I, I know the mighty Adam and I'm just gonna stick with that. Yeah. I will definitely stick with that shit for sure. But you know, uh, a guy who born and raised in Wales and kind of to add to the urban legend and mythology and all that type of shit he started in the boxing booths yep. in in the yep. UK, the famous boxing booths, which is like, you know, somebody might say, what's boxing booth? Well, I'll briefly explain, kind of like in a traveling carnival or vaudeville or circus type of show, they would have a cart or a booth, whatever you want to call it, where usually uh, a promoter would have several fighters. Um, and what they would do is people would be able to challenge these fighters and say, you know, can you stay around? with this fighter and if you can't if they knock you down or whatever then we win the money if you stay around you win money that type Mm -hmm. of thing or you can hang around and pay a nickel and then watch these two fighters fight type of thing uh and so that's where jimmy wilde cut his teeth as a fighter very small fighter he was a flyweight and even for a flyweight a really small flyweight um, and even so, is a really early weight, 100 pounds, man. He was a tiny straight guy. up. Yeah, this is the teeny little dude. And even so, was able to, as the legend goes, beat the shit out of much larger opponents at these carnivals at the boxing booths. And on top of that, it, according to urban, urban legend, he had like possibly upwards of a thousand fights at these boxing booths. Like, just, you know, how could you count them? Um, and then that's even before sure he had tons throughout the day. Absolutely. You know, yeah, absolutely. So uh, how could you count him up and how could you say he's a liar? I don't and know. Think about, and also think about the, think about this. If you see a guy and you see Jimmy Wilde and you see how frail he looked, I mean, yeah, I know you say he was a product of the booths or a few years or if he's a product, um, didn't he work in the fields and minefields? I, yes, I think he were, he did some mining. Yeah. So totally, I mean, that's obviously a guy that could scrap because I mean, minefields too. What do you think they were doing on their time off? They were obviously I've mentioned this other. shit before, but physical labor, <laughs> fools who have done physical labor, even just shaking their hand, you can yes. feel it. You're just like, oh, okay, you got a different kind of strength. Especially from that time period, the early 1900s, I, it's it's a different type of animal. They, they was, it's just different. There's different type of people. So while even with his frail nature, he still was probably an extremely strong guy. And 
so but yeah you see then and you see people you know a few drinks in them and everyone's drunk back then and doing some shit exactly you're gonna look at person like wow that could you wouldn't even think twice i want to think anything of it easy money even but you gotta think twice though man if you're a really smart person i see this little person over there and it's in a carnival and and they ain't afraid of you and they're like, oh, you know, for mm. I'll give you 50 bucks if you can beat this dude <laughs> something's up. Something's wrong. Nah, there's a catch here, man. You yeah, got, something's you know, wrong. Little man for 50 bucks and you'll pay me to beat him? Nah, I'm not taking that because clearly he could do something I can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something's wrong, bro. If somebody's that small and they're that confident and they're about to fight you, don't because something's wrong. Exactly. No, that's just it's not worth it, man. Walk away because you're going to get splattered in front of your girl, which probably happened hundreds And then, and then he's going to take your girl, too. Yes, so... But eventually, after going to the booths and everything, you know, most guys from all the way from the beginning of boxing, even Tom Molino heard about that. Um, they hear about what they can make as pro fighters, you know, the the adulation, everything else going on with it, especially at this point, too, when boxing is pretty prominent in England. You know, Wild has been around much longer than it has been in the U.S. Wild's easy money to turn pro, so. Yeah, absolutely. With without question, I want to say it was Joe Simons Simmons that he mm-hmm. had uh, defeated for yeah for the flyweight title in 1916. Had to look real quick, but um, he he defeats Joe Simmons and winds up holding the title uh, for about five years, and then in the last couple of years, kind of tapered off and semi-retired, and hadn't really been doing nearly as much fighting. And of course. You know, needless to say, that's what happens to every fighter. Every fighter winds up meeting, you know, their end one way or another. And I think he just stayed in the ring just a little bit too long and took on one opponent too many. And the opponent that he took on was number one, a little bit bigger, but number two, younger, just more energetic and himself a good puncher. And that was Pancho Villa, uh, Francisco Guido. By 19, yeah, man, this is the 1920s at this point. Wilde had been a pro for a long, long time. Yeah, he, he was definitely in his years. older years. Yeah, yeah, a frail and a, for a smaller guy. And we've already talked about smaller divisions and fighters, you know, flaming out quicker than quicker, quickly, or the hell is that even mean? Quicker <laughs> than um, than you know, an average heavier guy. And then add in all the booth fights that he took as well. Did he win all those fights? Yes. Did he take punishment in some of those fights? Absolutely, he did too. I'm sure he did. So he's had a long career, and on top of that, too, he had come off so he had come off a long layoff. He had been, you know, even though he was flyweight champion, he hadn't defended this title for a long time. Yeah. Um, and 1920 was his last really like active time. Then he came back in 1921. He fights Pete Herman, the bantamweight champion. Pete Herman, one of the most underrated fighters in boxing history, a really, really great uh, fighter who ended up going blind later on. But it's a really tough guy, a grinder, and a person who would just right in your chest and would just beat the shit out of you to the body. And, a flare, you know, not a big puncher, but just a really, really tough guy and a very good fighter. And bigger than Wild, um, fresher than Wild. And the fight almost didn't come off either. Um, in the great book, In This Corner, um, by Peter, Peter Heller. Peter Heller, yeah. Yeah. Um, Pete Herman was one of the first, was one of the early guys that Peter Heller actually interviewed for the book. You know, Herman was a part of that batch of guys that died only a couple of years after Heller interviewed them all. So he he interviewed all these guys around 1970, 1971. Pete Herman died around 72, 73. So that gives you the timeline about this stuff. Anyways, um, Herman mentioned how the fight almost didn't come off. Wilde didn't want to go into the ring for one reason or another. I forgot what the exact reason was, but Wilde didn't want to go into the ring. Place was sold out, everything like that. The whole thing wasn't going to go off. Prince of Wales came in. To, to Herman's dressing room, Herman said, and asked him what was going on. 
And Herman was like, oh, you know, Prince, nice to meet you, but, you know, Wilde doesn't want to fight, yada, yada, yada. So he says, I'll go talk to him. He said that Prince goes to go talk to Wilde. He said within two seconds, Wilde was running into the ring to go fight. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, he went in and he said, hey, you ever heard of the Tower of London? Get the fuck in the ring, bro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he said within two seconds after talking, he said that Prince said, I'll go talk to him. Prince goes to the dressing room. He said Wilde ran into the ring within seconds. Didn't even have to say anything. So probably got threatened. But, yeah, ex- um, yeah, exactly. Herman ended up ended up knocking him out and subsequently never got paid for the fight either, unfortunately. He said up until his death, he never got a, he never got paid a cent for that. You know, but that's boxing, right? Anyways. You know, have the have the temerity to fucking knock out a legend. That's what's gonna yeah, happen. Yeah, seriously. So, but like you said, he took time off for that fight. That fight <laughs> was in 1921. Then he finally comes back in 1923 to fight Pancho Villa. At this point, Pancho Villa was like the consensus flyweight champion, more or less. You know exactly. what I mean? He was exactly. really tearing shit up in that division. Frankie Gennaro, who was a legendary fighter, Olympian, and probably the only guy that really had Villa's number at that point, um, was the only one that could lay claim to be in was the only one that could lay claim to be in, you know, the dominant. Yeah, and there's a bunch of convoluted shit about the titles and the California title and the, yep. yeah. NBA was already bad. All kinds of crazy shit was going on back then. But Gennaro held claim. Villa held claim. Villa was the U.S. champion after knocking out Johnny Buff, I believe, and, um, and all this stuff. So, the, the, of course, and anyone, like you said, anyone claims, oh, the good old days, one champion. No. Even back in the early 1920s, there was all kinds of a big scrum and mess and people trying to claim this title and that title. All, you know, all kinds of nonsense. Anyways, Villa was the consensus, though, and the most popular guy and the one that people were really excited to see. And, and Wilde came out of retirement, more or less, to fight him. Wilde was old, like you said. He was old, he was frail, he was past it, and Villa was a rampaging beast, you know what I mean? Kind of the likes, again, that the Philippines um, hadn't seen, wouldn't see again until, like, Manny Pacquiao. In terms of, if you really think of his style, the way excitement, the way he brought everything, the passion, like, I mean, Flasher Lorde, obviously, is con- was considered the greatest Filipino fighter. Definitely beloved, but not the same, yeah. Yeah, but, like, Pancho Villa just... I don't know, man. He was a phenomenon in the early 20s. And he was getting popular in America, too. Like, you had Pancho Villa, you had Mickey Walker, Harry Greb, um, Dempsey. Like, there was a lot of, you know, boxing was doing really good with their champions. And even guy like Walker even mentioned that, too. He mentioned Villa as being a guy that was really popular back then. So, you know, Villa was the one that was being groomed. And what he needed to do was, that was Wilde basically coming out of retirement. Um, to pass the title on to him, more or less. And that's what he did. He got beat up yeah. pretty, but he got, you know, he got knocked down and rolled up into the sunset. But what's sad about Wilde is that, like a lot of these guys, man, he didn't have a good ending to his life or really at his career. Um, it's not like he suffered a lot of brain damage, all kinds of shit, but like what ended up happening to him is that he did afterwards, after I think he got jumped and mugged by a bunch of like street hoodlums or some shit, or something happened to him. And that's what exasperated, you know, his downfall. Yeah, I don't remember the exact story, but unfortunately, like too many people or too many fighters, just not a good end. And like you said, he probably took far, far more punishment than people realized, which is like, that's the other side of like all of the upwards a thousand or whatever fights is that like, oh, that's so impressive. And that's so crazy and scary. And then the other side of that is that that's so many punches you took. Holy shit, you know, so much punishment or hitting your head on such and such. So yeah unfortunately that's kind of just the ending i guess he was destined to have um but you know and and also because he was his his career was 
ended violently. You know, his career was ended like you know, he got flattened and got the shit kicked out of him by a much younger fighter, or at least a younger fighter was far more energetic and able to take, you know, the torch that he was passing or whatever. But yeah, needless to say, just the fact that on a pound for pound level, the the fact that he was able to be that much smaller than opponents. And I mean, when you're that little, when you're like 98 pounds and you're fighting somebody who's like 15 pounds bigger than you, just do the basic math there. That's 15%, you know, fucking more that they're weighing than you. And that's, you know, go upwards and wait. That's Dick a lot Paul should have looked up Jimmy Wilde before he canceled this fight. God damn it. Seriously. <laughs> Jesus, get it together, Jake. Um, buddy there is there is i mean there's there are there are clips of jimmy wilde in action fighting they're not great there clips, are but there are clips out there but there is a pretty hilarious clip i just want to say because the voices are really funny on it and uh it's colorized you know i'm talking about of jimmy wilde showing it's at way after his career ended and i think it's like with him and his son and they're like showing the finer the finer points of boxing that sounds and really familiar but i'm not sure here and there's, there's a guy with like a really high-pitched voice he was like jimmy wilde Former flyweight champion will show you, and like you hear the music in the back, and Wild is like dancing, you know, moving around. <laughs> yeah, stuff like it's, yeah. it's out there. It, there's a, there's a clip. Probably of it. some newsreel like, or some shit. Wild then stops and like talks about his career, and I don't know if it's if that's his actual voice or if it's like oh, the damn, recording of it, kind of now. like making it a little bit more, um, making it a little bit more high pitched. But he has the most like high pitched mousy type voice you can imagine. <laughs> oh no! When he's like, well, well, now we know he learned how to fight. Yeah, I have a feeling it's the audio. You know what I mean? And then he was like, "All right, now Jimmy Weld is going to show you how to do the finer points of boxing." And then he shows you how to like parry a punch, how to do this, how to slip. He was like, and then they were like, "All right, now he's going to do the exhibition." Now he shows him moving around, the guy trying to throw punches while you know parrying and. and and if you watch it, most people are like, oh, is this guy a great fighter? What the hell is this? He looks like crap. They can't fight like that. And they're like, nah, nah, man, you know, this is legit. And they're like, see, once you learn all these moves, then you can be like Jimmy Wilde and take on the world. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, some of those newsreels are just gold. Fucking oh, no, gold. they're pretty awesome. Absolutely awesome. I, I love I love um, YouTube for all that stuff. Um, I'd, I'd say we got time for one more that we could slide on in there. Okay. Well, one of them I actually wanted to bring up just because he was obscure. I mean, look, there's tons of guys we could have brought up. We could have brought up Wilder, um, Sandy Sadler. And we could always re and we could always revisit. There's, there's this so many. Too, yeah. There's so many. Yeah, we're definitely gonna have to revisit this too because you know I'd love to talk more about Sandy Sadler and his ridiculous punching, Alexis Arguello, Archie Moore, obviously, um, Sam Langford, for instance. You know, all kinds of different guys, right? But. One dude, and this is kind of more of a joke than anything, I wanted to bring up to you because, um, and people just can be like, really, of all guys you could bring up? But yeah, I'm going to bring him up because it's actually hilarious. Lamar Clark. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not considering one of the biggest punches of all time, but, you know, when you have a record, you remember what you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, I'm, I'm pulling Clark. him up now. I know the name and whatnot. 43 and wins, 42 knockouts. And he claimed that he, like, at one point, he had knocked out, like, three guys in the same night. One of the shoddiest, most ridiculous yeah. you find from Cedar City, Utah. <laughs> I, I can't remember. We brought him up on some other show. I just can't remember for what. But <laughs> it's just, I mean, I'm not going to talk much about him. It was just something that was, like, funny because of, like, he was mentioned in a Ring Magazine article that I read about as a kid. And they talked about how he, like, scored, you know, uh, he, Again, his all of his knockouts they scored the forty three wins in a row before he just started losing all the time. 
no, before he lost his three fights against actual good fighters, including Muhammad Ali, or against just absolute novices. Either guys with yeah. the debuts I mean, or this and that. He's got that intermountain AAU title. <laughs> yeah, because, you know. God, imagine the competition of Utah boxing in the 50s besides the Fulmers. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, all right, quick, quick pop quiz hot shot. Better Utah fighter, Lamar Clark or Gene Fulmer? Yeah, no, that's... The only, uh, the only win on his record, you have to say, of anything would be Tony Burton. And Tony Burton, if you recognize that name, he was the one that played Apollo Creed and subsequently Rocky's trainer in the Rocky series. Yep. That's it. But the guy well, actually... Ahead. According to according to BoxRec, shout out to our boy Gray Johnson. Clark yeah. developed the same mauling and brawling style as the champ as the champion, who being Gene Fulmer. He sparred with Fulmer's brothers Don and Jay. I'm sure they all. Beat I mean that out. that makes sense. <laughs> Who the fuck else is going to spar with in Utah? But <laughs> exactly. But the only the one person that that's more of a joke. The one I actually really wanted to bring up from that same era was a guy that punched so hard that he could break an elbow with one punch. And we're talking about my man and one of my favorite Cuban fighters, Florentino Fernandez. Oh, there you not go. From the Cuban, not from the Cuban school of boxing. And this yeah, is the one well. I legitimately want to talk about. Fernandez was one of those guys, um, never a world champion, but a legitimate monster puncher. One of the scariest punches of the division, of the middleweight division of the 60s. And just... And a TV darling, like he was featured on, on, you know, the Gillette series and television all the time back then because he brought the action, he brought the heat, and he was a straight beast. And wasn't, you know, wasn't really finessed, wasn't a great boxer, could be outboxed, didn't have the best chin, but everything was made up, you know, everything was clean, um, didn't matter because he had a left hook that would just clean everything up. Well, and probably, unfortunately for him anyway, the the most his most famous moment, if you've seen him at all. Oh boy, Ruben Carter, we know. Mm. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately for him, you know. But I mean, look, Ruben Carter caught him early, came at him, you know, caught him just right. And I mean, you're not going to see too many knockouts precisely like that, where the guy's like, you know, twirling through the ropes like some fucking weird toy. You know, uh, he just got caught badly. So and that could have happened to Carter. They they said, dude, they all knew that fight wasn't going to go to distance. That was a well, and that's what I'm saying is the... and someone was going to catch the other. Carter was just a was a faster starter. He's faster than Fernandez. Had a faster punch, and he just swarmed him. Yeah, exactly. And going into that fight, it wasn't quite like Zarate Zamora or anything like that. But it was definitely on that level in terms of people acknowledging that these were two punchers or two fast starters, two guys that were going to tangle you know go at each other so something was going to happen but yeah nobody expected reuben carter to come out and just absolutely fucking moita him you know nah nah that was one of carter's most uh, impressive performances but carter was known for stuff like that man he was like if you think about it he was almost inconsistent unfortunately but yeah extremely inconsistent but when he was on his game he was like a middleweight mike tyson you know it was really hard to keep him off you and once he got you hurt man he finished you off he was a vicious vicious dude he was a scary fighter, a very hard charging fighter, a strong dude, a strong, like strong middleweight. Built What's like that? Granite. Built like granite. Yeah, just a, a very strong, muscular dude. And guess what? Dick Tiger beat the hell out of both of them. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just pity patted the shit out of everybody for 12 rounds or 15 rounds. And you couldn't do nothing. They couldn't do nothing about it. Carter said, Carter was like, I was able to be stronger than any fighter I fought. When I fought Dick Tiger, I couldn't do shit against him. Like Tiger just bullied him. And the same thing when Tiger tried it, Fernandez 
was going to do a thing with Tiger. Tiger, you know, was too strong for him and also sliced him up and stopped him on cuts. But Yeah, just beat him up. Just pushed but, him, pushed him around, beat him up. But Fernandez, man, he just – he had that type of hook, dude, that, like, that, that made up for almost everything. That almost won him the middleweight title. The aforementioned Gene Fulmer, one of the most rugged, toughest fighters in boxing history, man. Just a guy that was literally made of granite. Um, if you can bully around and beat up Carmen Basilio and outmuscle him, then you know how tough Fulmer is. Like, that's, no that's the type of guy Gene Fulmer was, you know? And um, Fernandez almost stopped him. You know what I mean? Like, it was a really, really tough mauling fight. Fight was held in Utah. And if you think about it, if it was held anywhere else, Fernandez might have gotten the decision. But late in the fight, Fernandez landed his left hook right on Fulmer's elbow and he broke Fulmer's, literally broke Fulmer's elbow with a left hook, like, which is crazy. We've heard of guys like Papino Cuevas and others breaking jaws and eye sockets with a left hook. And that's, you know, doesn't happen all the time, but it's more normal than not. Um, breaking the actual like joint in an arm or something like that with, with a punch is some wild shit. That's a really hard bone. Yes. Like extremely in- hard. And, and it's not like it's like not, a long. You, think you would hurt your hand punching an elbow. Yeah, it's not like it's like a long yeah. bone where it's like in the middle. You know, you could snap or you know, that's mm-hmm. what the fuck. You know, like how does that even happen? And broken. There's like a photo. You see Fulmer like writhing in pain after like getting hit by, by that shot. You know, and Fulmer to his credit was able to rally the last couple of rounds and eke out a decision, but it wasn't easy. Um, who? Um, Gaspar Ortega. One of the great contenders of that time, same thing, man. Fernandez dropped him, beat the hell out of him the first time they fought. The second time they fought a rematch, Ortega made sure not to get anywhere close to him because he didn't want to get really hurt. Or in probably his most famous knockout, I would say, was against a young Jose Torres, who was undefeated and a middleweight at that time. And when he fought Fernandez, who was a little bit past his prime, Fernandez brutalized him, just absolutely brutalized him. Yeah, dude, uh, Jose Torres was... uh came from that custom auto school mm-hmm. had that exact same you know cuss was trying to force like every fighter to use that style and you know uh torres was not a big puncher but was a very good boxer and a very you know he, he was a smart fighter and whatnot but it was just he obviously had limitations and this was an unbeaten jose torres before he became champion and fernandez just had his way yeah, man, he just knocked him out, beat him up, stopped him, and everything. But Fernandez came in one of those really, really tough eras in the middleweight division. Like, that's, you know, when you got guys like Dick Tiger and Joey Giardello and Root Hurricane Carter, um, Rocky Rivero, Jose Gonzalez, um, the list goes on and on. And there's like, these are all just general bad motherfuckers back then in that division. You know what I mean? Like, just really, really tough, hard nosed guys, Joey Archer. Even like, just he, even you know, just New York, like just New York, yeah. not even getting outside of New York, you know. Like these, this, this is what the the middleweight division of the '60s looked like, you know, when Emil Griffith come into the helm of it afterwards, and um, guys like that, like yeah, after I, after everybody left and Carter convinced him, don't do that. Yeah, 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 totally. So like you you have you had like once Fulmer gets stopped by Dick Tiger. And that's when the next era of the middleweight division started. Like you said, you had Tiger and Giardello and all these other guys. And then from there, that's when Nino Benvenuti came in. And that's when a whole other era started. Benvenuti held it for a moment. And that's when Manzon came in the early 70s. And then a whole other era reigned in from there. But that 60s middleweight era, man, was just tough as nails. And Fernandez just had a couple more tools to go with his left hook and a better chin. Uh, Lord knows. 
And again, maybe if he had, and maybe if he had better luck um, against Fulmer, you know, when the fight took place, when it did, and like, you know, it didn't happen at Utah, there's a good chance he could have got the decision on that one. Either way, he was going to have to fight Dick Tiger, and either way, he was going to get whooped up by Dick Tiger. But like, you know, yeah, he, Dick Tiger was inescapable for anybody, <laughs> man. and he was Madison yeah. Square Garden's darling too. I love the fact that almost his last like dozen or so fights all took place at MSG. Like during a time when MSG was kind of going through like a down period and, you know, things in New York and all this other stuff happening, Tiger was still a mainstay over there and he always brought in the fans. Yeah. You know, yeah. finally Bob Foster put an end to that, but yeah. Yeah. yeah Bob Foster put an end to a lot in his career. Speaking of which we can, Speaking we can bring yeah. up Mr. Foster potentially on the next episode. Absolutely, man, because when you talk about monster punches who had a mean streak and were kind of surly and not the nicest person to begin with, you got to talk about someone like that. Talk about a guy who terrorized the light heavyweight division for a little while. Imagine harnessed, those... harnessed his own hatred and put it into the ends of his punches. During a division that wasn't the strongest anyway, so these guys weren't world beaters that he was fighting with the, except, with the, uh, with the exception of a few. <sighs> Knowing you had to fight that man? Yeah, no thanks. Pass. Pass and get Mike quarried. No thank <laughs> you. But now nah, we'll, we will definitely get down uh, to the nitty gritty on the part two, for sure. There's going to have to be part two. There are too many, too many fighters we left out, yep. but yeah. dude, I, you know, once more, I appreciate you chatting this up with me, bro. It's always a really good time. We got to talk some good punching bullshit today. Yeah. This was a lot of fun, man. We talked some good names. We brought back some fun memories, laughed, joked, whatever. Everything was good. Almost cried a little bit. It was awesome. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. We we really do appreciate it. Uh, and like I said, we'll be back. So don't fret. Don't be upset that we didn't talk about your favorite fighter, your favorite puncher. We will be back. Uh, in lots the, of great punchers. Yes, definitely lots of great punchers. If you listened in via the podcast apps, please subscribe. Give us a rating. Those things are helpful. Leave a little comment. Also, if you watched via YouTube, Thank you so much. Also subscribe, leave a comment, those kinds of things. Very helpful. As far as social media goes, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on Facebook, Instagram, and we're also on Twitter. As far as individually, both Eris and I are on Twitter, though. You can catch us there. Eris is there as Punch Zone Eris. I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. We'll talk to you there. And Eris, I will talk to you soon, my friend. Have a good one, everyone. Later, buddy. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.